Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Shrett. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey guys, thanks for coming back and just like every other episode, if you see something that resonates within you or that you know should be shared out to people, don't be selfish with the information. Tonight we have a special guest, somebody I've been trying to get on here for a while, uh, somebody that means something to me, uh, means something to Matt uh, and everybody that was there in Second Platoon. And we're going to talk about American exceptionalism um, among, among other topics. From where does American exceptionalism derive surely it planted its roots in the hearts and souls of those in the new world just before the revolutionary war it was then that regular american citizens banded together to fight against the strong arm of the crown imagine the conversations that must have occurred something like this is america this is the new world we didn't risk everything to come here and be ruled as we were ruled before Then again, during the First World War, when the news came across the pond from Belgium, the war crimes and the atrocities, when they came to America. Shortly thereafter, the British intercepted a telegram from the German Foreign Minister Zimmerman, urging Mexico to declare war on the United States. The conversation swelled with patriotism and anger. Let us turn loose the dogs of war. Then again, in World War II, following the war to end all wars, American exceptionalism burned bright as the Marines tore through the Pacific, as well with the army across Europe. It was certainly on display when President Truman urged the the Japanese to surrender. Then they didn't. Imagine the conversations that occurred in the Oval Office before eliminating Hiroshima and Nagasaki. American exceptionalism derives from the individual people that say Send me, send me to war, send me to Vietnam, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, to Syria, to Africa. Send me because if not me, then who? Tonight, we're going to have a conversation with one of those patriots, one of those exceptional Americans. In 2010, the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines, Kilo Company, 2nd Platoon waged war against the enemies of our nation in the flooded poppy fields of Helmand Province. Marja, Afghanistan was, at the time, a hotbed for the Taliban. Gordon Emanuel was one of those vessels of American exceptionalism and served as 2nd Platoon's commander. People often use the phrase brotherhood in the military community. The brotherhood of warriors is forged in times of dire need and the ability only to depend on one another. In times as we experienced in 2010, a unit needs lions and it needs leaders. Gordon Emanuel was a lion and a leader and became much more to the Marines of 2nd Platoon before we left that place. If I was to build a team to go back into harm's way, I would place him at the helm. He's a warrior that brings men home. He's an instinctually blessed tactician who puts in the work and he thinks, he plans and he executes methodically. 
Gordon's currently a major in the United States Marine Corps and currently a student at the School of Advanced Warfighting in Quantico, Virginia. The School of Advanced Warfighting develops lead planners and future commanders with the will and intellect to design and execute joint campaigns and naval expeditionary operations. Gordon was the first Marine in my career that I wanted to emulate and then stayed that same person for the past 12 years. Gordon has continued to be a well of knowledge and assistance for me and many others and someone who I'm honored to share with you guys. So after that, E-Man, what's up? Thanks for coming out. I appreciate having you out. appreciate you taking the time, making the trip, and it's been a minute, but uh, thank you on behalf of both both me and Matt. Thank you, Ryan, uh, Matt, and uh, you know, thank you for that outstanding monologue. Uh, I would say, you know, 10% of that stuff is true <laughs> with regards to American exceptionalism. Uh, but every single thing that you said on there, um, luckily, I was able to be a part of, you know, one of 40 some odd Marines that truly embodied uh, what is on that monologue. So thank you for doing that justice. I uh, just want to make sure that we keep this on those Marines that ran across those poppy fields and ran across those fields filled with machine gun fire to include you two phenomenal gentlemen right here. And, you know, Joey Froder over there, uh, you know, having himself a nice beverage on that couch <laughs> um, every single day. I think about those Marines, former Marines, and it was easy to be a part of a group of warriors like that. So uh, good work there, brother. Mm, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, so at the beginning of every episode, you've watched a couple of them. I usually ask a couple of pointed questions um, just to know where you come from, the culture of the area in which you live, what you grew up, and kind of those foundational building blocks, as it were, when you were younger. Um, and so if we can just start where you where you grew up and family, family culture. Yeah, I grew up uh, to Haitian immigrants. Um, they, they moved to the United States and uh, I was raised in Brooklyn, New York, uh, born in 1985, lived in Brooklyn, New York, uh, until the, the mid nineties. Um, when you think about Brooklyn in the eighties and nineties, uh, that that's what we went through, you know, uh, seen my fair share of, uh, drug dealing and shootouts witnessed my first shootout when I was seven years old on rollerblades. I remember going to visit my uncle uh, in Virginia. He was in the Navy. He got me a pair of rollerblades, and I was like, I'm going to go back to New York and show everybody what these rollerblades are all about. <laughs> and I remember having the rollerblade down the block uh, because there was a shootout. Um, so that was the type of stuff I grew up seeing. Um, my parents realized like this was not something they wanted to raise their kid in. Mm. Uh, so I think it was, what, 1997, we moved to Virginia for six months. Uh, my father couldn't get a job. And then we saw a Disney World commercial, it feels like. And then we moved to Orlando. I swear it happened <laughs> like that fast. Uh, so big shout out to my family and my parents for, you know, making those big moves. Because if we didn't move, who knows where I'd be right now. Mm. And what age was that? Uh 12 is when I left okay. uh, New York, and then by, by 13, I was in Orlando, Florida. Sure. Yeah. Um, so from then on, uh, went to high school, high school called University High School in Orlando. My very first year, I have to sign up for some electives. Mm. And I didn't have really much of a big military background. Obviously, my parents weren't in the military. My uncle was in Navy, but 
I only saw him, you know, once a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a pretty big, he's more of an influence today than he was back then. Um, but MCJROTC was one of these electives. I didn't want to do drafting. You know, I didn't want to do cheer. I didn't want to do a lot of the <laughs> things that were listed on there. There was an elective called MCJROTC. I remember asking the guidance counselor, what is this? Mm. And she said, it's Marine Corps, you know, junior reserve officer training, uh, whatever that C is. And what stuck with me was the Marine piece. And I remember growing up watching that commercial of the Marine slaying the dragon. Mm -hmm. Right. Never Mm -hmm. thought I'd join the Marine Corps, but I always thought like that Marine Corps commercial was pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. And then for some weird reason, I also had a Marine poster uh, of that Marine with the black gloves, black M16 and the the cami paint and the rope wrapped around them. Mm-hmm. That was also in my room growing up in New York, <laughs> but for no specific reason except that I thought it looked cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I signed up for Marine Corps JROTC, and the very first person I met was Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts. Uh, this is 1999, and from 1999 to 2003, Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts. Uh, became my number one mentor. Uh, He was an infantry Marine uh, who served 30 years in the Marine Corps, Mm. and he was on his 10th year uh, serving as uh, the lead J-ROTC instructor. So he was somebody that I wanted to be like. He was somebody when I would, you know, get a C during a semester in some random class, Mm -hmm. he was the person I was worried about was going to pull me in, not really my parents, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Um, So he's a big reason, probably the reason why I'm in the Marine Corps today. Sold, huh? Sold, yep. Yeah. It's interesting. um, Ty Davis uh, was my very first platoon sergeant, just had him, just recorded Mm -hmm. him recently and dropped him out. And he's doing that now. He's got his own fitness company now where he's taking care of fitness and health and healthy eating macros, micros for people and for his clients. But he's a JROTC instructor now at a high school. And she says, like, the purpose he gets from helping those kids was uh, pretty amazing. So it's cool how they how they do that and how they can foster, you know, good relationships that way. Um, I I don't know that everybody would be good for that. I think there's only certain people that would probably be good for that, in my opinion. But. Oh, that's that's super dope. So, uh, so if I understand it, there was no real catalyst that turned you to want to go to JROTC, none, or have a poster. It was literally it was random. Just, just you know, random remember thing. in high school, you have to pick, you know, your electives, uh, and again, like a lot of those electives just did not jump out at me. Right. Um, so I decided I was just going to do something weird. Hey, I could do it for one semester. If I don't like it, I don't like it. Yeah. Um, and I remember a couple of my buddies doing it with me. Uh, and they only did it for a semester. But you for know, them. After so, they put so but out, after that, you were like, sold, that's what you're going to do. Oh, I, well, I was sold uh, that I was going to stay in JROTC. And then 2003, March 2003, um, you know, the Marines are storming into Iraq. As a matter of fact, if you back it up, obviously in 2001, mm-hmm. you know, co- uh, those planes hit those towers and, and hit the the Pentagon. And Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts, you could see like his instruction changed. Mm-hmm. Because every single year, our program was sending 
you know, high school students that graduated to the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the Marine Corps was probably making mission just off like that school <laughs> by itself. Mm -hmm. So he knew that many of us were about about to be a part of something over the next few years. Uh, so 2001 is when I really decided, like, I'm, I'm most likely going to do this. Uh, and by 2003, I'm a senior in high school. Uh, you know, the Marines are going into Iraq. I bring a recruiter into the house. Okay. And I was probably one of the easiest walk in the office, uh, you know, pooley or whatever you want to call them for mm -hmm. this recruiter. My parents invite him over. I'm like, hey, the recruiter is going to come through Thursday night. I'm 17 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the recruiter comes. Big old Haitian meal. We have lasagna. We have all of this good stuff. He eats with us. And mind you, it's March 2003. I'm going to graduate school in like two or three months. Mm -hmm. But literally in the other room, you can hear CNN. Because the Army and the Marines are going into Iraq. Like mm -hmm. tanks are barreling down the road. All that is happening in the other room. <laughs> And finally, after, you know, a two hour dinner, building rapport and all that good stuff, because I'm 17 years old, the recruiter had to slide a piece of paper across the table, slides it over to my dad. And it's like, all right, you know, I can send him up to MEPS, get him physically qualified, medically qualified. And the day after he graduates uh, from high school, we could have him off to boot camp. And my dad was like, nope. <laughs> and like my jaw dropped. I'm like, mm -hmm. wait, what? what you know I, I didn't sign up for college i had no plans to go to college uh you know i thought becoming a united states marine was going to be you know the biggest thing that anybody in my family had ever done plus like there's something going on right now and i don't want to miss it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't want to how miss long it. will this last how long will this last you know, I want to make Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts proud I want to be able to go you know to school tomorrow and tell them I'm going. I'm going. I'm yeah. going. I'm gonna be just like you. Uh, but my parents were like, "Nope. If if he's gonna go fight, you know, it's gonna be something that he needs to decide. Meaning he's gonna have to be 18 and do it himself. Mind you, I wasn't gonna turn 18 for another eight months. Mm -hmm. You know, my birthday's in December, so I was gonna graduate high school. The summer was gonna go down. The fall was gonna go down. You know." Uh, the longest time of your life. That's right it. There. The longest. So. <laughs> My plan from then on was, all right, fine. Like, I'm, like, pissed. Mm -hmm. um, for the rest of the year, I'm just pissed. Slamming doors and all that stuff. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, wrap up, you know, the, the football season and all that good stuff. Track season. Everybody, some people are going off to college. Some are going off to the Marines. You know, some mm -hmm. to the Army. And I'm like, what in the world? So, obviously, you can't get into, like, a four-year university by the way, I wouldn't have been smart enough anyway with my grades. So I quickly went down to Valencia Community College. Shout out to Valencia. All right. And they accepted me. So in the fall of 2003, my plan was, all right, let me just get some credits. I knew I understood if you have a few credits, you could be like a Lance Corporal or mm -hmm, something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. Like, let me just do that. I'll, I'll join the Marine Corps in January. Uh, but fate would have it. There was a guy. In some weird set of blues that I never seen before because I was very much led by enlisted Marines mm -hmm. in JROTC. Uh, and he was a captain. And that captain had a pull-up bar. He looked at me, looked at the pull-up bar. 
I got up there and did my thing. And for some reason, I was at his office like that day. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I was going to be a Marine officer. Um, so I went to officer candidate school uh, that summer in 2004. And the rest is history. Check. How much do you think 9-11 weighed in on your ultimate decision to join, if at all? 9-11 gave me a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, going through high school, you know, you always kind of want to sound smart when people ask you what what you're doing after high school. And I remember for like a long time, I was saying, I'm going to be a computer engineer. Why? Like, that's so not like my personality at all. But I think I heard a smart kid say it. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds cool as well. You know, people wanted to be doctors. People wanted to be lawyers. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really find that thing that I really wanted. Um, me and my buddies, we used to rap in high school. That was something that we did as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew that that probably wasn't going to take us that far. And I wanted to do something <laughs> a little bit more responsible. Plus, the, the people I used to make music with, they were real smart, too. They were going off to college anyway. Um but 9-11 and then seeing how Sergeant Major Roberts responded to that and how he like kind of put that weight on our shoulders a little bit, mm-hmm. that, that changed me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, 2003 just kind of doubled down with that. And yeah. Gotcha. So you don't have to get too detailed, but can you talk about some of the schools, TBS and and – uh, infantry officers course yeah for it's sure just about kind of like what you expected it to be versus what it was um if there was any difference in that and then um you know the big takeaways that you got personally individually out of those schools yeah for sure uh so the big the first big school was officer candidate school uh over in quantico virginia and i think they put officer candidate school in quantico for a specific reason Quantico during the summer is terrible. Every single bug, reptile that you could think of is going to be operating out there. Mm-hmm. The humidity is going to crush you. And then in the winter, you know, the cold and the snow will crush you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of uh, human factors out there. It's a great place to train. Officer Candidate School is a very, very physical school. The thing about Officer Candidate School, they're looking to screen people out. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember. Uh, but it's a testament back to Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts because for four years he was teaching me as much as he could Mm. about the Marine Corps. Mm. And I would like to think I was very, very, very ready. Uh, once I went to officer candidate school. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good too, because, well, you're probably the first one. I've only talked to a couple of officers so far, but you're probably the first one that said that they were prepared because you know, most of them are like, had no clue, didn't know history, didn't know rank, didn't know this, didn't know that. And I'm like, probably a bad way to go into it. Yeah, just yeah, like if yeah. I'm just looking. Yeah. You know, like, so you, I mean, that's comforting. That's great. And it's a big testament to him doing good work with the, you know, his candidates or his, um, did you call yourself a candidate? No, we were, uh, cadets. Yeah. Cadets. Okay, cadet. Yeah, okay. Cadets. Yeah. Cadets. cadets. Yeah. Good. Cadets. Um, yeah. My peers at, didn't go to Marine Corps JROTC in high school or have any of that. That just shows how phenomenal they are. If I didn't have it, I would have got dropped like, <laughs> for sure. They did you great. know, like I could not imagine checking in and having to worry about the general orders or rank structure or like the difference between, you know, sir and gunnery sergeant and yeah. all this stuff. Like 
I did not have to deal with that. I knew how to drill a little bit. Um, so in many ways, I had a little bit of a cheat code. A little leg up. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's a big testament to my peers that didn't have that, that are in the same place I'm in today. Uh, and a lot of, you know, my, my service has to do with people that prepared me for the next thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was officer candidate school. The way it was split up, I went after my freshman year in high, uh, college. Spent two years in college, my sophomore and junior, and then between my junior and senior, you go again. Mm-hmm. They split it up, juniors and seniors. Uh, great time, both times. Very, very difficult, uh, but very, very manageable. Um, and I always had Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts still as a mentor during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always knew like there was no way in hell that I could quit. You know, you could right. try, you could DOR drop on request, but like that that was not about to happen. Coming mm-hmm. from where I came from, did a lot of guys do that? Yeah, for really? sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I'm just kind of pulling these percentages out, but at least a third. Yeah, at least a third. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. a third. And again, back to like the whole screening piece. They're trying to screen you out. Vice like build you up to mm-hmm. be a marine mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um so that's like a maybe a small nuance between boot camp and ocs it's like no we, we're trying to yeah it reminds me do you have what it takes it reminds and me then of we'll like teach a, you what we need to absolutely, teach you absolutely yep reminds me of like a selection yeah yeah you know exactly yeah. which is great because mm-hmm. it works um, yeah <clears throat> yeah so and that's tbs that covers all of them so that's ocs ocs yeah all right so yeah. that's ocs you're not a marine at that point right uh, even after I finished the, the second piece, you know, like it's unwritten, but I'm probably a Marine now, but I still have to graduate college and then do a commission and pin on the second lieutenant bars. Sure. And then I'm a quote unquote Marine. So that happens in 2007. And then, you know, November 2007, I'm off to TBS. TBS is a six month course. Uh, where they teach you the basics of being a Marine Corps officer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. company grade officer specifically. Uh, and that's also where during those six months, you're going to get exposed to all of the different specialties, MOSs, and then you're going to pick one. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you, actually, you're going to rank them all in order, and then they're going to decide which one you're going to get. You already know, uh, coming from Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts, you know, cadet pool. I only knew one MOS and only cared about one MOS. <laughs> and that MOS was infantry, mm-hmm. and they called us uh 0302 infantry officer all right and uh tbs was great tbs was kind of like college uh on steroids it was very very cool gave us a lot of responsibility uh what i appreciated about tbs were the captains all of those captains were afghanistan and iraq veterans your instructors instructors Okay. okay yeah so the way it works every single uh Every single platoon, they broke us up into platoons. So, for example, I was Alpha Company uh, 1 TAC 08, the first class in 2008. 300 or so students, six platoons, 50 students in a platoon, lieutenants. Uh, My SPC, my staff platoon commander, was Captain Getz. And he took us from A to Z for those six months, whether it's from the beginning at the rifle range all the way through our final field exercise. And he was the guy that told us, uh, every single one of us, what our MOSs were mm, going to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he was also an infantry officer, so I just got like the double 
you know catching them but yeah i'm just it's like this is what i have to be he's somebody that you know even to this day i do look up to as well uh but he was a iraq vet all of the spcs were afghanistan and iraq vets and mm -hmm. you know a lot of these people were going to go back uh to these places because obviously we know that none of that shit was over anyway mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so yeah so they're I, training essentially they could potentially be training their platoon commanders for their company or battalions that they later were going to command guess who i was a platoon commander for one of those guys captain gets i was his xo on the second second deployment okay yeah yeah so that? it's funny how that works uh so that was tbs taught taught me a lot about the basics and then went over to the infantry officers course and this course is you know very well known as one of the best courses in the marine corps mm. i would probably say uh it's one of the best as well and for three months they taught us how to lead marines in combat nothing else we didn't worry about fit reps we didn't worry about admin the only admin we worried about was writing orders uh to be as lethal as possible but mm. i've never been to another school that is so focused on one thing and that one thing was leading marines in combat and you know back to the preparation we were talking about how i've always been able to get prepared for that thing mm. ioc is a turning point to where it was like okay this is going to be real i think before ioc i had a bit of a romantic understanding of what was going on overseas ioc made it real um how, how so a lot of what happens at ioc kind of stays there right uh it doesn't get let out of those four walls uh but when it has to do with human factors, the physical stress that happens in war, the mental stress, the moral stress, uh, the stories about combat. In TBS, our SBCs told us about their combat stories, but mm -hmm. at IOC, they told us like the rated R, you know, the true version. Um, everybody at IOC wanted to be an infantry officer. Okay. Well, that makes a amazing environment it makes it an amazing environment mm -hmm. and every ioc instructor uh was handpicked to go teach over there because of their experience and their passion for wanting to make sure that whoever goes forth after you know they're instructed does the right thing so it's just like a spartan community uh of individuals and, and it's like that to this day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it should be um well obviously it had deep impact on you and i don't want to let cat out of the bag at all but um you think that it's more the stories do you think that because it's like somebody's telling you legit butts you know nuts to bolt exactly how this is going to be from straight from their experiences you think that's the gravity and you hadn't had that yet i mean what was the difference yeah i think i think there's some credit uh credibility that comes behind it um, there was a lot of mystery behind the infantry officers course. Um, that was a course that I was afraid I would not make it through. Mm. Uh, you know, OCS, I was confident. TBS, they're not really trying to, like, kick you out. They're trying to build you up. But IOC will will go ahead and, like, let you go, give you another MOS if they don't think that, you mm -hmm. know, you should be leading Marines directly into combat. Um, and they're trying to they're trying to weed you out at some point. Yeah. At some point in the beginning. Um, but then their job is twofold. OCS, they're trying to weed you out. Cool. 
But IOC, they may be trying to weed you out, but they have to teach you something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, they have to teach you something. And they also have to graduate people because there has to be platoon commanders out there. No, no, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, so uh, the instruction was phenomenal. The level of instruction from OCS to TBS, those two were great, but those captains. And those enlisted Marines that were assigned to IOC, next level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And everybody wanted to be there. We were O3XXs, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have the MOS per se yet because we had to graduate from the school. Uh, but everything they were teaching us, we knew that we possibly could be using this stuff overseas in six months. Like for real in six months. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they would tell us stories about people that graduated in the same seat I'm sitting in right now that are deployed right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right now. You know, so that's that's when it became, you know, less romantic and more of like, OK, I need to pay attention to everything that's going on mm-hmm. um, and I have to really take this seriously. And that's when I started really understanding as well, like as a 22 year old, what do you mean I'm going to have a. 35 year old staff sergeant and a, <laughs> and you know 40 marines ranging from 18 to you know 30 something mm-hmm. you know i was 22 years old fresh out of college worrying about myself the biggest thing i had to worry about was getting to work on time my part-time job and, and keeping my mitsubishi eclipse from you know overheating in the florida heat so uh yeah we there was a certain level of seriousness that mm-hmm. came behind mm-hmm. And so, I don't know if I understand exactly how you get orders or how somebody gets selected to go wherever. Is it strictly needs of the Marine Corps coming out of school? Um, So, I think this changes uh, when it comes to IOC. But for the most part, you know, everybody puts a wish list. The Marine Corps says, hey, we need, you know, seven lieutenants to go to this battalion, three to go to this battalion, one to go to this battalion, five to go to that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And everybody puts their wish list up. Um, I wanted to actually go to Camp Pendleton, California. I'd never been out there. I was an East Coast boy. Mm -hmm. Heard great things about it. Uh, But maybe I wasn't, you know, doing that well. So I didn't get my first choice. Uh, or you were doing so well that they were like, well, we can't send them there because everybody wants to go there. <laughs> yeah, every, all, all of us wanted to go to Camp Pendleton. That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but I remember one day they said, you know, 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines. And the cool thing about it was even though some lieutenants got orders to Pendleton, 3-6, the battalion that I got, was like nine of us that went. And you probably, y'all probably remember all those lieutenants. Like, it was just a whole bunch of us checking in on the same day. So what was cool about that was I was at TBS with them, IOC with them. Knew some of them, yeah. And they were the ones that, you know, uh, ended up going to combat with them, linking up with them. A couple of them still in the Marine Corps today. Still in touch with them? A hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And so you come to 3-6. I know that, you know, this is where I'm going to, you're probably going to have a little bit more than I do for this section, but I wasn't there yet. So just full, full disclosure, when you got there, I wasn't there. And then when I checked in, you still weren't there. You were at school or you weren't there. You were at schools. And so I came late, but I'd like you guys to talk about the workup and like, especially you, I'd like you to like, talk about what's it like getting your first platoon, doing your first, you know, expectations brief of, of your guys, of your unit, of your leaders, how do you, you know, navigate that course 
there early. Yeah. Um, you know, we check in and when I checked in the third battalion, six Marines, the battalion was actually on deployment. They were in Fallujah. I think this was like mid 2008. Let me think here. Probably September 2008. I may be off by a couple months. They were in Fallujah whooping it on. And I remember uh, immediately looking up like where is 3-6 the day that I got orders to 3-6 getting online and all of us realized, oh, man, they're, they're in Fallujah, you know, whooping it on out there. And we all know the stories of Fallujah. Uh, so I kept up with them constantly. But I remember we checked in. Uh, there was a couple officers that stayed behind on the uh, deployment mm -hmm. and they just made a stand duty for like 30 days straight. I remember I had to stand duty like three days a week. Oh, good. Um, so that was kind of cool. Kind of got to understand like where, how the battalion works and the company spaces and all that. Uh, but I'll never forget, you know, we were there for when these hard charging Marines got off the bus from their deployment. And that was a special time. And uh, we didn't know which platoons we were getting, but we got assigned to our company. So I remember Kilo Company um, getting off the bus. And yeah, that, that was, you know, very cool to see uh, them link up with their families. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, from then on, I knew like, wow, these Marines look young. They look <laughs> younger than me. Um, there's a couple gruffy looking ones but most of them are you know america's national treasures and you know mm -hmm. it's cool to see that they made it back mm -hmm. then the battalion went on 30 days of leave and you know who had to stand duty for the again 30 <laughs> days again <laughs> you know the guys so that didn't just get home yeah so you know just more leave i mean more duty more duty more duty um and then finally we're back all right yeah. and the company's back um and I remember observing this one Marine, six foot five, you know, uh, everything he said was, uh, you know, dominating the room, uh, knew a lot about his infantry. He was a staff sergeant <laughs> and I was really eyeing all the different platoons and second platoon. And there came a point to where it was like. I really hope I get second platoon because <laughs> the Marines yeah. respect Staff Sergeant Wright. Mm -hmm. They respect this Marine. Um, and I and I was always brought up like you want that good senior enlisted next to you. Like back to Sergeant Major Alexander Roberts. And like immediately, boom, I snapped and like, I hope I get him. Luckily, uh, I got second platoon. Um, and then the rest was history there. Um, he taught me a lot. You know, I, I brought a decent amount of book knowledge. Um, I was highly motivated. I was willing to do anything. Uh, but he brought the practical knowledge that that enlisted Marine is supposed to bring. Mm -hmm. um, and something else, you know, I kind of want to talk about with regards to Marines like Staff Sergeant Wright. And uh, you all as NCOs did this as well. I remember whenever we would get new Marines from SOI, uh, he would make them all do an interview with me as a lieutenant, second lieutenant Emmanuel. And he did something that I realized, like, I don't know if people are doing this today. And and sometimes I wonder, maybe we should. 
You know, no book that you open up is going to tell you to do this. But when you really take ownership of your unit, you're going to. Quite a few Marines were saying, hey, I plan on getting married or I plan on buying a car next week or I plan on doing this or I plan on doing that. And he would be like, nope, I haven't given you permission yet. Talk to me next month. And he did that to like (laughs) one out of every four PFCs that would check in. You know, I want to get married. Nope, the lieutenant isn't making any marriage decisions right now. Come back next month. (laughs) And I thought this was normal. (laughs) And like there came a point is like, oh, I have the power to like tell Marines whether or not they could get married or not. And guess what? Like Marines just weren't getting married and... (laughs) They bought it. Yeah. You know, one of the Marines, I remember, um, he didn't end up going on deployment with us. But uh, he was like, no, you have to make time to go to the car dealership with me on a Saturday. And I'm busy this Saturday. So we got to wait until two Saturdays from now. But, like, you know, it kind of sounds funny. But at the end of the day, like, he was taking ownership Mm because he would go with you. Yeah. You know, and he would make sure you didn't get screwed over Mm -hmm. on your deal. Um, and he would take time out to go spend time with you and all that good stuff. Uh, so 15 years later, I kind of understand like, oh, wow, he was taking more ownership than the Marine Corps was really asking them to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I just wanted to give that story because, you know, I want NCO staff and COs, junior officers to kind of take that level of ownership. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. The, the methods could probably change, but the, 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 the love and the ownership should probably remain the same. Yeah, because it didn't come from a place of, like, fuck you. It came from a place of, like, I don't want you to ruin your life. Yeah. And I've seen this same story play out. Absolutely. 15 times a year under my command. Like, not Absolutely. happening, dude. Go away. I'm, I'm doing you a favor. Yeah. Maybe the methods could change. That. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. like that. I had never heard His methods story. were harsh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that yeah (laughs) fired yeah no yeah and that's the thing that's that's what we want out of staff ncos i think you know once you put that rocker on like it's your marine corps Mm. you know there comes a point i think junior officers second lieutenants first lieutenants captains a little bit sergeants corporals lance corporals like it's okay for some of us to say i can't stand the marine corps i hate the marine corps like when we're looking in the mirror that's fine all right cool because in many ways, you're kind of renting the space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trying to figure out, like, if this is for you. Right. Um, I don't know what rank it is, but, like, there's a certain rank you reach where they call you a career Marine. I don't know. Maybe a staff sergeant. I don't know. But, like, you could tell once he put on that rocker, or maybe he had always been like that, like, this is my Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Like, if the Marine Corps sucks, I have nobody to blame but me. Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of talking about, you know, all the car dealerships that were screwing Marines over, you know, or Marines that were ruining their lives, getting married too young, he was saying, no, it's just not going to happen in second platoon. Uh, it's not going to happen with any Marines that, you know, I am influencing. Mm-hmm. And he had such a presence to where Marines weren't pushing back. <laughs> yeah, that's not, a fact. I mean, he had that presence truth, against, you know. against all of us, yeah. even yeah. guys that have been in for a minute. Like, uh, like I said in the, in the monologue, I you and Joe were the first good uh, like element team element as a commander. It's my third squad. I love two in combat and I get to you guys and it's like, you guys ran things different and you had that presence. And a lot of that came from Joe towards me, cause, you know, at least initially until we got in country, but 
many of us learn many things from Joe Wright. Yeah. There's no doubt. And like, and while we're on the subject, I learned so much from Joe Wright in 10 minutes when we landed in Marja. Hmm. 10 minutes. First 10 minutes. And I'm jumpy and I'm giddy and I'm, you know, the on and off drill didn't really go like we planned. Mm-hmm. We're all muddy. Everybody's wet. I got guns down, weapons down. And he's like, so what? <laughs> like, so what, Rogers? Get over it. Now we have to work. Because it was like, hey, what do we... There's. I think he just seen it in my eyes. I didn't even vocalize that I was what I was feeling. But I think he kind of like, I'm like trying to get a grasp on my situation. He was like, hey, so what? It doesn't matter. You know, and like yeah. that lesson alone was just... Uh, just like monumental to me because mm-hmm. it's like no you're right our ride just left so you cannot like all of this and you could feel a certain way about all of this but so what because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how you feel about it mm-hmm. now you owe them let's do it you know kind of thing yeah and man that's like uh he had a way of doing that he had a way of like being that old the old man in the platoon, you the know old I mean? salt. Like bringing that and like, get over yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done this for 15 more years than you have. My body hurts too. And so what? Let's go. You yeah. know? Yeah. So I've always appreciated that. And that helps you in life too, because it's not just like the Marine Corps. You're going to have your issues and you come out of that. Life is going to continue to throw you. So what's, you know, and, yeah. you, and you got to master that anyway. So I want to get more. I want to get back to some uh, workup stories that I missed like meeting the platoon for the first time and what that's like um training ops the first time maybe cacs i missed all of that so i'm interested matt you got something yeah i can i can talk on it so now i don't know if this is just how i remember meeting you or if this is actually how it happened but i'm pretty sure it is and maybe I saw like you came to a formation, but like your first initial come to the platoon and have a platoon meeting with us, mm-hmm. it was on the second deck in our barracks in the little uh, conference room or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And you held up the O three eleven, the Marine Corps Bible. I don't, I don't know the pub. But I'm sure both of y'all could tell us the pub number, but you said it's Marine Corps Bible on infantry riflemen. The book will get you killed, gentlemen. And you threw it over your shoulder. And that was all. I was like, okay. So he's, and you said, reference it, know it and reference it, but the book will get you killed. And that's, that's how I remember. Well, that's a saucy way to meet. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is the real shit here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So out of a movie, (laughs) you know, today I cannot remember the context behind which I did that. Uh, but yes, I do believe, you know, I've been an instructor a couple of times that sometimes we could be uh, too tied into doctrine. And there's a saying of like, you should be doctrinally sound, but not doctrinally bound, mm. you know, and think about our combat experience in Afghanistan. I'm sure there are a lot of things that applied and some that did not apply at that point. And there yep. were problems that we encountered that you could not find the answer in a book. You know, so a big reason why Marines have been so successful in combat throughout its history is its ability not to execute the book, is to execute the battlefield problems, prosecute those problems, and then put them in the books later. Mm. Do you think we do a good job of that? 
I think we do a decent job. I think we do a very good job at the tactical level, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. like learning lessons. And they may not be in a green book like today, but they're somewhere. They're, mm -hmm. they're the after actions and yeah, whatnot. They're after actions. The reason I ask is like, we just we were just talking about doctrine, and like the implementation of doctrine. And, and the conversation came up because of training, like a good portion of the training that all of us received um, was traditional, in the woods, not in an urban environment. We spent very little little amount of time before going into a mountain environment and a mountain engagement or an urban engagement. We spend very little time institutionally doing that for a period of like over 20 years. And then, so the question becomes like, did we even form doctrine out of that 20 years? Has there been one publication that's been written about best practices in the last 20 years? And I'm not, I'm asking it out, that from a position our of times. ignorance. That was at our time with, <clears throat> we don't know what happened in, well, he may know what happened in the last few years, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm hoping something was written down from previous engagements. Well, I'm sure there's things written. My question is, is, has there been doctrine built or is it like mountain environment was so drastically fluid? And as we changed TTPs, they worked around them. We changed our TP, TTPs and they worked around, you know, and I just didn't know if there's something that we're um, not doing <clears throat> Um, doctrinally what I'll say is uh, doctrine is always always getting updated um, okay. so whether it's mount machine gun pub patrolling like that stuff continues to get updated here's the thing you know no book no 100 page book no 300 page book is going to be able to cover tomorrow's problems mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so whatever we learned in Afghanistan it might be very, very important to second platoon, but it doesn't mean it's ever going to apply again. Check, yep. So doctrine Check. is supposed to teach you the fundamentals, right? And a, a, a foundation from which to move off of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of times you won't see doctrine change too much. You know, there's, there's a solid way to shoot. There's a solid way to employ a weapon. There's a solid way to go on a patrol. You'll change that based on the, the AO the and the enemy, mm -hmm. uh, but we're here to we're here to train the basics, train and give people a solid foundation, and then we hope people can think back to the you know the rifle squad pub that you can think of when you need to go ahead and throw the book away mm -hmm. um, or mm -hmm. diverge from the book. Mm -hmm. um, just like the doctrinally sound, doctrinally bound piece, like before I want a marine going away from the book you need to know the whole book mm -hmm. i still want you to know the whole book just like thinking outside of the box right everybody's like hey you gotta think outside of the box before you think outside of the box tell me you know the whole box mm -hmm. right and i, I like, heard it a different way yeah there's no inside there's no outside of that box there's no box throw the whole box away and you're just there yeah like yeah. you don't there's don't think with any box mm-hmm and just handle the situation as you as you as it comes. Yeah. Now you still need that, and this is where it comes into my present career. There's theory, and that would be doctrine, mm -hmm. right? This is what we base our situations on, our our our, uh, our diagnoses. So yeah, I get exactly where you're coming on. Man. Yeah. No, I, I wish I had heard about the no box thing when I was in the Marine Corps. I think that would have helped me. Yeah. 
But you all thought outside of the box every single day. Whenever we would encounter an idea on a Tuesday, the things you did 24 hours later to make sure that we didn't get tripped up on that, that was thinking outside of the box. Nobody looked at, you know, a pub. What, what, what was it? What did you got? What, the sickle? Remember the sickle? What you used to, to, to like, scrape for IEDs? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What? Hey, show me the pub that was in. No, no, yeah. That wasn't in the pub. You know, Marines were coming up with different ways on how to figure these things out. And it also doesn't mean that it should be in a pub tomorrow right. necessarily. Because right. it might not work you in know, Sangin or exactly. however Or many, just another you know, country. Or yeah. the, you know? the Pacific. The yeah. Pacific, yeah. So people people adapt. And, you know, the Marines, the second platoon, you guys absolutely adapt. And also that, that, that goes back to recruiting to say... You know, I'm hitting. Uh, I'm foreshadowing for the for the uh, audience is when you're recruiting a marine. Like, yeah, you want to make quota, but you also want to make sure you're taking the best of the best, the mm-hmm. guy who can think on his feet, the guy who can fight physically and mentally, both in combat all the time. Absolutely, you know, mm-hmm. adapt on his feet. That's always the best thing. And really, you're looking for somebody that the Marine Corps can build into that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, not there aren't too many people. Not like you're gonna take them off the street like that. But hey, they come with like if there's a Kentucky farm boy who can work on a tractor, and you're in the middle of the middle of the shit. It's like get some shit fired up, man. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. So I I want to know more sick events. The workup I missed. Let's go. What do you got? Well, you know, the biggest thing as I a lieutenant, like as a lieutenant yeah. for the first time, what do you what are the big takeaways from a workup? Yeah. So, you know, given a second lieutenant perspective, you know, I, I wasn't a prior or anything like that. Uh, one of the biggest mental challenges was, oh, man, I have to train a platoon that are filled with combat vets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because like, these guys le- just came legitimately, home. Legitimately, mm-hmm. I am, you know, 22 years old. Lieutenant Emanuel, fresh off IOC, TBS, and really just college. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to train these 40 Marines. I would probably say, what, at least 25% of them, 50% of them had been on that last deployment. Uh, you have to train them to get ready for the next one. Now, what's interesting is that uh, many of my peers and much of the Marine Corps was going to Iraq and or Afghanistan we actually had orders to Japan mm-hmm. to go on a UDP. And, you know, that's just a six-month deployment. You go to Okinawa and you train for six months and then you come back. Mm-hmm. And that at that time was not something that, you know, infantry <laughs> Marines were trying to do. That is not, That was not the deployment to go on. Uh, but I remember, like, we're just not going to worry about what the deployment is. We're just going to train our butts off. Mm-hmm. We are just going to train as hard as possible. Um, and then, you know, every single PT event, every single range, every single thing that we did, uh, Staff Sergeant Wright set a good example here. And, you know, I was able to kind of, uh, I would, I, humbly admit like follow his lead like the intensity was like we're going to combat tomorrow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know every pt be. session whatever it may be every terrain model walk like whatever it was we're going to combat tomorrow uh and people were saying hey we're going to japan i didn't believe it you know staff sergeant joe wright was like don't believe it and next thing you know a couple years later 
think it's uh, 2009, December 2009, President Obama at West Point. I'll never forget it. Me too. I think everybody in the in the entire Marine Corps watched it, and mm-hmm. I know everybody in three six watched it. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget it. Uh, my parents thought I was going to Japan, you know, for eighteen months plus, and mm-hmm. President Obama, two thousand nine December West Point says, you know, I may get the number wrong, thirty thousand more. Thirty. Yep. Going to Afghanistan, and I was like, okay. Okay, maybe that's going to be us. And literally, we went on Christmas break, came back, and then Colonel Christmas brought the battalion together and said, we're going to Afghanistan. And that was that. That was <laughs> Give me that. Cultures. That was that. Yeah. And it was like, wow. And, it, and you know, it kind of punched you in the face because it's easy to say, man, we don't want to go to Japan and just train. We want to go to combat. Easy to say that. <laughs> you know, and we got to talk a lot of smack for two years like man we wish we were going here and going here doing this doing that and you know you open some gifts at on christmas and you get a big christmas gift hey you're going here go some orders you guys leave in like 30 days <laughs> you know you guys are leaving right away so uh that was absolutely you know in many ways uh, a kick in the gut oh yeah um now you're second guessing you're like oh did i train them hard enough you know, did did I do every single thing possible to make sure that uh, these Marines fight with their everything they've got, you know, and, and that we could bring, you know, everybody back home. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because in 2009, I had just come back to three two off of the boxing team because we came home from Iraq and they talked about going on a Mew. And I was like, fuck this. You know, I already missed combat. This whole fucking show's over. You know, I'm going to the box. I'm going to go try out. So mm-hmm. I make it. I fight for nine months up and down the East Coast, New England a little bit. But pissed. Didn't get combat. Now I'm going to get out, you know, because it's coming up on my reenlistment time. And right about, or, or re, you know, reenlistment or get out. And right about that time, my first marriage fell apart. It's like, what am I going home to? Like, screw this. They're talking about Afghanistan. Maybe, right? So I do op four and I'm like secured on, um, like a second regs PSD for their colonel that's going to stand up and go over there. RCT 656, something like that. I don't remember. And I was stoked because I was like, combat deployment. I don't care. PSD, I'll own it. You know, whatever. At least I'll get, you know, into another con- conflict zone. And that's what I wanted. And then they called me like, like four weeks, you know, three weeks after I signed the paper. I'm still kind of in this limbo mode. And they're like, you're going to 3-6 and you guys are going to Japan. And I was like, fuck, again. <laughs> and so I had, I, had, I had way different emotions. Like for me, it wasn't a kick in the gut. I was like, oh, fuck, yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe we can. There's the side of it that I was with a unit that I didn't train with. Mm-hmm. You know, there was those nerves and anxieties. And I didn't know where I was going to fall in the platoon exactly at that time. Because we had some roster changes after that announcement. But, uh, yeah. I've got well before that too. Before mm-hmm. you even showed maybe up on deck in three six, I remember a rumor that we were going to Al Assad to cut yeah. cut sandbags. Yeah. Okay, it's no longer a rumor; it's confirmed. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there were a lot of rumors. I remember there were a lot of rumors, uh, a lot. Um, but that's the Marine Corps, you know. You gotta, you gotta stay busy with the rumors. What Walgreens say? 
I knew we were invading Mars just seven months ago. <laughs> Didn't tell you because we want you to be pissed. <laughs> he didn't know. As long as you envision, uh, if you can envision us when you kill the enemy, motherfucker, you're going to be pissed. <laughs> Quote. Quote. So, Stanley McChrystal requests 30,000 extra troops. Sits on the desk for a minute and then it gets signed. It gets signed. 3-6 goes into the shoot because like just came back from there. Full workup, and then your uh, your curtail training at the end. Past that, come home. Rosters change a bit, and then it's like Hilo Dunker, one more BZO range, and a boot drop where the bees came in. And then after that, it was it was go time, right? So wasn't it, I just remember everything speeding up after Christmas break. It was just like no, I remember it after Thanksgiving, like right after the order, like it just started. Because we, I mean, you got to figure we left in, uh, what, the 3rd or the 4th of December, and we had a 96. They gave us a 96 for, for New Year's Eve that that year mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they knew what we were doing, mm-hmm. you know. So, they knew more than we did. Yeah. And we got the bees 10 days before we deployed, for you know sure. What? Going no back, doubt. there was one significant event, and I don't know if you were on it because you might have been at Mountain Leaders Course, but for me it was a significant event, and it was the hike, the 20-something mile hike. Were you on that? Yeah. Okay. At night? Yep. Yeah. For me, at that time in the Marine Corps, I hated hiking. Not that I couldn't do it. I can hike. Yeah. I hated the act and the whole um, mindset and thinking at that time behind hiking. I thought all they did was hurt Marines. Nobody hikes like this. There's at no point am I going to need to do this with this weight. Um, Not a real thing. And in my career, you know, seven, eight years, whatever it was at that time, six years seven years something like that i had never like nobody had ever had to do that mm-hmm. right so it was it was foreign to me and then people got hurt on the hike I, you know i was i got blown out but as we pull into the softball field you know we did the wagon wheel thing everybody drops their pack and then the colonel comes out and he wanted us to play tug of war and but then when he did and i was pissed i'm like man fuck this what they just trying to hurt people but he gave the speech after that saying it's not we just made movement to the objective and now you have to fight and that's the takeaway that was like a big thing for me like hang on and then when we did that like god awful like 17 click clear in southern marja mm-hmm. i remember hurting it i remember going back like when we all got squared away and i'm talking to like him and jesse and some of the other guys i was like hey i know you guys hurt but i know you don't hurt as bad as you hurt it after that hike <laughs> I was an and everybody was mile. like, no, man, fuck that hike, you know, but it gave the Marines something worse <laughs> yeah. to, to, um, draw from Yes, like, this is bad and that sucked and we're tired, but we done worse than that before. Mm-hmm. And we know that our bodies can do it. So let's recover. Let's do the things we know we need to do to recover. And then the, we can get back after it kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so that was, I, and I thought about it, that whole click or that whole clear that we were doing. That's the only thing that was running my, through my head was I know my guys can do this. Like I, I know I can do this. Cause sometimes I like, I would, I would be like, huh, what do we, I don't know if my body's going to hold up for like eight months of this. I'm not sure yeah. that I've ever trained that hard. Mm-hmm. I wasn't um, on the 20 mile there. Imagine that. I was at corporal's course, TAD. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the 1220. I've told you this. Yeah. yeah. And the, tw- were you at the 1220 or you in mountain leaders? It was 1220. The, it was the supposed 12. to be the first, it was the first 20. 
It was like 100 degrees, they said. But it was like 1,000 degrees with a billion percent so humidity. So maybe it was that one I was on. I was on the humid one. The when, very like, humid we, one. We got to the 12-mile mark, and they're like, or no, 6-mile mark, and they're like, that. look, we're not, we're not making it. Yep, we're not making that. time. The sun's going to be coming up by well, the time yep. we get back. And it was that. something about the amount of casualties they'd well, already they taken. Well, they had filled all the, a- the <laughs> they vehicles. They didn't more room. It was like the 6-mile. Get some. I guess it was the second time we stopped. The second time we stopped, they had to like send the A vehicles back to BAS, yeah. drop all the casualties off, and come back. And I was like, "Yeah, I'm still drunk from being out in town. Like, why are people <laughs> dropping out right now?" Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember that one. That was it. That was a a big one. And you know, as the I'm sure there was an ash chewing at the battalion level. I'm sure or something. But it was like there was. We were literally walking through water on land through that humidity. It was not a North smart Carolina idea. humidity. Yeah, that's it. You know, and that's why we do it. Mm. Yeah, you know, that's why we do it. So. It was just as humid in in Marja. So yeah, I mean, for sure. Maybe uh, Lieutenant Colonel Christmas knew what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think I think uh, it was definitely by design. Yep, it was a good one. Um, I actually fell asleep while walking during that one though. I also <laughs> staff sergeant called me out. I kept going straight as the entire platoon started oh, to turn. He was like, goodness. "Are you falling out?" I was like, mm, "Fell asleep, staff sergeant. I'm waking up now. He's in the zone. Yeah. I'm back. <laughs> you entered that flow state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's wild. You know what? Here's some. I need some clarification on something. When mm-hmm. we went to the airport in Cherry Point to leave, were we supposed to leave that day, or was it always that we were going to stay all night there and leave the next day? Remember that? I actually can't even remember. Yeah, so we pull into Cherry Point. Everybody does like the rigmarole. We weigh a bunch of gear, and we're like sitting in those rows and rows and rows of chairs. Everybody's like waiting forever. Then they came in. They're like, "Sorry, fellas, leaving tomorrow." Everybody's like, "What the fuck?" I'm spending the last night on American soil in a freaking terminal. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember specifically. There, you know, like those little transition points, like gone. (laughs) He was going of ros- going over rosters. Yeah, it's like command rosters. Rosters, yeah. rosters <laughs> on the rosters. Yeah, you know, playing team commander. Like, you know, for every leg, one of us lieutenants had to be in charge of making sure everybody got on. Like, yeah, I, and, EDLs. But how yeah. do you know? You know, <laughs> sleeping, sitting on the pack. You know, I, I think the junior Marines had the luxury of like. Taken in the moment, you know, like couldn't really take. I tied like thirty-seven boots together that night. Or, yeah, or yeah. To, or to like the chairs, and yeah, I watched. Yeah. I was like, Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, that's it's like we, me and Herbie the and the boys were playing spades. You know, there's only so many games of spades oh, you can play man. before the people losing don't want to play you anymore, and you can't yeah. make them play you anymore. Well, when yeah. you cheat, I was whatever sure it was triple <laughs> and quadruple checking EDLs and equipment, like. Yeah, smoked. Because once we're gone, we're gone. That's it. Yeah, and that's that's another thing. You know what's crazy about that flight is, um, it's flying commercial with your weapons is mm-hmm. so foreign, like in my mind. Yeah, that when I had my rifle under my seat on a commercial airplane, it just felt uncomfortable. <laughs> like it felt uncomfortable to me. Now coming home, completely different. If you took my rifle away, <laughs> coming home, I'd have felt more uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but. It was wild, wild. And then checking in, like, um, we were talking about, oh, Anderson Hernandez. I don't, mm-hmm. know, I don't know where he was mindset-wise, but when we were talking offline, he's like, do you guys remember when we landed in Manas? I'm like, yeah. He's like, and it was snowing. It's beautiful. <laughs> we're like, yeah, pretty beautiful. It was beautiful when we were allowed to put warming layers on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that was a wild time too. And so after that, we do like um, a flight, like a military flight into Leatherneck. And then there's like some, you know, a couple weeks. I don't know if it's acclim- you know, to, to acclimate to the climate. And like, and then we got a, a bunch of like JAG briefs and ROE briefs and yeah, all of that. And then we moved down to Leatherneck, you know, whatever. We, or that was at Leatherneck. Then we moved down to Dwyer, right? And so we staged at Dwyer for a while. We got our ANA, our ANCOP. What's some SIG events from that time frame that you're thinking of? Or how are you processing this as a lieutenant, you know, coming up right to the eve of this, you know, this invasion? Yeah, I remember it being, you know, a lot of administrative going on, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of briefs. And like you were talking about, a lot of people briefing us on stuff. Mm-hmm. And I get it, uh, but it seemed it seemed like hours and hours and hours, and I did not want us to get mentally complacent, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody that was giving us a brief was not going to be on that helicopter when we landed, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted us to be of a certain mindset um, when we landed. Uh, so I just remember like just trying to maintain Staff Sergeant Wright and I like let's maintain the combat mindset, let's train here and there where we can. Mm-hmm. I remember like training some strip in Leatherneck where there were like like AC units or the the hooches and we would like move and communicate in and amongst those things. Wherever we could find a, a place to train, we were mm-hmm, trying to do mm-hmm. that. Um so that that was my primary focus. Mm-hmm. I know you really pushed down on me what well, something that you I, I'm I assume all the squad leaders um uh you brought us um workups for like Excalibur rounds, which none of us to that point had ever used. I don't believe uh, for high Mars rockets. You're saying, Hey, these are going to be assets available to us. Make sure you know what you're doing. And then I remember me, uh, high and JT, I believe he was with me. They let everybody brought a couple team leaders with them. And then we sought out the arrow. Um, was it maybe, uh, was it Methlier? Yeah, or he was Bacchus? the uh, Ford Observer mm-hmm. artillery officer. Yeah, and he did a great job. Like yeah. to have a you know a young sergeant coming up to him, like, "Hey, sir, this is what I need." And I mean, he broke down everything, mm-hmm. line for line, exactly what they're looking for. So everybody, um, I think it was the fact that everybody knew it wasn't fuck around time. So it didn't matter your rank, it didn't matter anything. If you were trying to seek information out, I felt like at that time everybody was facilitating to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm up and down the chain to get information and get people's nerves down and get people, you know, locked into the right headspace. And, and that, that for me was huge. Cause that's the only, that's definitely the only unit I was in that, that I ever felt that now it's also the only unit that I, that ever did anything that kinetic. Like I went to Iraq and it wasn't kinetic like this. There was IEDs, pop shots, but not like a decisive, engagement every day you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i think there was just that was in the air people knew this is not we all need to help out because everybody's going to help us out we're all going to help each other out and that's all we got and i maybe some of that set in uh that mindset a little bit more yeah knowing what was coming you know well you know squad leaders and the ncos and second platoon (coughs) they were the type that you know they were going to take initiative Mm -hmm. and, and figure it out we had developed our unit as one that was not going to sit by idly and, and let the situation occur to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see how, you know, each and every one of y'all took your squads, took your teams, 
you know, half of our Lance Corporals could have been team leaders. Like everybody was mm -hmm. aggressive and mm -hmm. everybody was preparing, double, triple checking stuff. If you didn't know something, we were going to figure it out. If you figured it out, you made sure that everybody else knew it, mm -hmm. seeking information. It was great, you know, because there wasn't much pushing at that point mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that I had to do or Staff Sergeant had to do. Y'all were, were taking ownership. And that mm -hmm. was going to be very important because many times in Afghanistan, y'all would be alone and unafraid and you know you would have to take initiative mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. to get the job done so um, yeah all, all the credit to the NCOs in that organization that was able to keep the unit moving forward I think that's an important note to make just about um, the Marine Corps infantry line in general it's the NCO Corps you know there's corporals and sergeants the fight these days is not a big battalion company size fight it's just not it's just not one and I don't know that it ever will be one again. Um, you're the expert on this, or you're way more way more uh, read in on it than I am. But it's going to be small unit tactics. We're not lining up in lines anymore. You know, the battlefield's changing. You know, you look at the battlefield now, and we can get into it later. But you know, with the drones coming onto the scene, the way that they have the last ten years, let's say, but now it's like really really blowing up you got ukraine russia all you know azerbaijan armenia all these different people are having these swarm drones these you know different things and that's something that you know we never had to wonder whose drone that was you know so the battlefield has changed so um that's interesting i think i lost my train of thought to be honest with you well what I, you know what i would say on that stuff is the nco has never let me down yeah in the marine corps yeah. Right. If you if you train him or her effectively enough, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, uh, two types of coaches that I see coaching my kids in sports. The coach that I like is the person that's really hard in practice. Mm -hmm. In practice, be very very hard on them and tell them what you expect in practice. Right, because then. During the game, you should be kind of sitting back and they're going to perform to that standard. And my kids have had a lot of coaches like that. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. try to take that in whatever job that I'm doing, whether it's combat or recruiting or whatever the case may be. But then you have, you know, the other type of coach, the person that takes practice for granted, does not have a good practice plan, does not demand the most from their people. But yet, once it's game time, they're all pissed because their players aren't performing the standard. Mm. And now they demand, like, something impossible. Unrealistic. Unrealistic. That's never been you practiced. Know? Never been practiced, man. This is your fault. Look mm. in the mirror. You mm. know, uh, there's a quote. I'm going to botch it. But it's like, you know, never demand out of your people in the situa from a situation that you never demanded them from them before. Or you didn't prepare them for. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, whether it was combat or on the streets recruiting if we couldn't do something uh, i would always go back and see like was that an expectation did i train it correctly did i mm. educate them effectively enough um so i think today in the marine corps we are absolutely training our nco still to be doctrinally sound but marines are getting enough rope to operate mm -hmm. make mistakes mm -hmm. get lessons learned and whether it's, you know, 
the proliferation of drones or whatever the case may be and new technologies, just like Marines came up with the sickle to find IEDs mm. and do, you know, counter IEDs and all this good stuff. We're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily need to be on a uh, page in a piece of doctrine, because mm-hmm. a lot of times when when it's in doctrine, it becomes dogma right away and it becomes irrelevant. Mm-hmm, There's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, I'm sure you probably have some in some Tupperware in here like there's some books that are totally irrelevant probably (laughs) right uh we still hold them very very close but it is what it is um as long as we're flexible enough to adapt in the middle of a situation we're going to be fine doesn't mean it's going to be bloodless no no yeah you're going to have to learn um but the enemy is going to have to learn as well and as long as we're learning faster than him then then we'll be fine Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what is um What are your thoughts on, I try to ask this to guys that were there with us because it blew my mind. What Did you ever think we were going to be uh, utilizing resources and assets that we utilize there? And the, the way I mean that is, and maybe you did, for me, coming off two or three different deployments where I never used air once, and I never called, called artillery once, and I never called a HIMAR once. <clears throat> only ever fired one or two rounds in aggression at the enemy. I never dreamed that it would be mutually fortified machine gun bunkers that we're fighting or, uh, you know, like a 10 warthog aircraft that we're calling in or, uh, fixed wing harriers to drop a 500 pound jade. Like that's just things that weren't, and not that I didn't know how, not that I didn't know we had them, but the amount of resources in the Marja campaign were insane to me. What was available, what was instantly available, what was at your disposal? You know, what's your thoughts on that? No, I absolutely <clears throat> knew that we would, you know, be fighting the enemy that knew how to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I had read a book sometime in 2009 when there were some grumblings that maybe Afghanistan may be on the table. Um, the bear went over the mountain. Mm-hmm. And it's about when the Soviets went into Afghanistan in the 80s and, and you know, uh, the Mujahideen uh, put the hurting on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were able to be technologically inferior, uh, but they employed the technology that they did have to to send the you know Soviets home. Um, so I knew that we were fighting people that had a, a history, a culture of knowing how to get it done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I also knew that we were going over there for a purpose. So at least for a limited amount of time, we we're going to have almost every asset possible. Uh, so I knew like post landing and for a certain amount of time, we were probably going to see the joint force come together and we were going to see who's going to come out on top. Yeah. It never occurred to me. Yeah. Like it never occurred to me that we would do that. And I think that was my, like my historical configuration, like never happened there, never happened there, never mm-hmm. happened there, dry hole there, dry hole there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I heard all these things, you know, I think the, I think that when it got real for me, <laughs> I think when it got real for me, and this is going to sound stupid, but when it got real for me was when I seen my pallet from my squad loadout of ammunition for until that time. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? We're fine. Everything's fine. Let's get this good and trained up. We're going to be smart about things, but everybody just relax. You know, I've been on a couple of these. It's always, 
it's always told to you worse than what it comes out. Wish I'd never said that, but that's <laughs> when I got the ammo load out and it was like AT4s and LOLs and APOBs and backpacks of shit and Claymores. I'd never got issued a Claymore on any deployment I'd ever been on, ever. And mm-hmm. I did other ones as squad leader. Never had a Claymore. You know, um, grenades. And then it was like, okay, they before they said it's going to be all this and then they gave us like 60 rounds and, you know, flashbang. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying it's going to be all this, and they give me like you know five hundred pounds of ammo to, to tote in on our backs, mm-hmm. and and at that point it was like oh and body bags they gave us body mm-hmm. bags, and I'd never been given body bags as a squad leader ever, um, and so the gravity really set in. Something I always talk about is right around that same exact time frame is when we we when we covered um you know a couple different coas of how we were going to navigate across to the company area on day one. So you pulled in the squad leader, staff sergeant. We were around a map. Talk about it in the book. I've talked about it on here. And I wanted to highlight it, especially with you since it's about you. But that was also something I think that I think that for me, because I'd had other commanders and I'd had other lieutenants and I'd had other operations in country, um, I just didn't another thing that wasn't on my radar. It was never on my radar because I'd never had a lieutenant call squad leaders or team leaders in and say, hey, this is the situation we're about to face. What do y'all think about this? I want all COAs brought up and thoughts and everything, which goes right along with, you know, MCDP1, which, you know, the, the post that you made that I felt like a idiot because I'm like, yes, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. Where did you see this? Yeah. MCDP1. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, weird, well, but, you know, when you bring that up, of course, I was going to bring in, you know, the squad leaders uh, for a couple of reasons. One. And look, this isn't like, you know, just trying to be humble for no reason. I know me. I'm never the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. All right. Like and if I am coming up with the idea and everybody's like, OK, we'll do that. There's something off. There's something <laughs> off. Like we need to. Let's double check what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've, I've found that I'm a little better at pulling out the best idea from the team, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, three squad leaders, a platoon sergeant, probably a couple of team leaders there. Like the second part to that is you all were going to have to take ownership in a big part of this. Do plan, it. Yeah. You yeah. know, so. Well, there's you, a little bit of genius in that, too. Yeah. Um, and a it's beautiful, but you know, in Jocko, I've heard Jocko Willings, other renowned commanders talk about it. And now I've, we even in our little company have implemented this multiple times is, um, if you give them the plan or a portion of the plan and they take ownership of it, uh, when they come up against an obstacle or when, sh- when things shit the bed, instead of looking back at your commander for all the answers, like this was your plan, sir. It's like, no, you have that. No, no, this is the one I owned and I chose, and we're going to make this one happen, you know, instead of that. Absolutely. And there's genius in that, for sure. So seeing that for the first time come from you really, like, impacted me later in life. And, like, to put, you know, because I sit around later in life and just pull out the things that happen. Like, what were key parts? What were SIG events? What were, and that's a non-combat related meeting in a hooch somewhere that had had like monumental impact on me and then the way i would lead people thereafter you Mm -hmm. know what i mean so definitely um definitely a learning lesson there for me And, and the other thing is like if you didn't pull us in 
and, and, and you simply briefed that plan to us, I'm not sure I would have understood completely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, it, and if a Marine um, doesn't understand why he's doing something, there's an issue. Yeah. Like, there should be that purpose um, as an intrinsic fallback motivator, in my opinion. Like, that's what worked best for me. Like, if you're just say, go shoot, you know, that guy right there, I'd probably be like, why? You know, why am I shooting that guy? Why are we... Because I want to understand the purpose behind it. Yeah. If we don't have to shoot that guy and we can bypass this, and it's not going to hurt us. I want to understand why. Mm-hmm. And so coming in and having that plan, it's like, well, there was two koas. And, you know, the other koa was way more uncomfortable for me. You know, maybe not for everybody, but for me. And so then I understood why we would do that koa, and I understood why we would do this koa. And altogether, that makes me have a more sound picture of you know, whatever one we landed on. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, I, maybe I might have went across the yard to get to that one. But well, to your point about letting them, letting squad leaders choose the COA or whoever the 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 less senior commander, the junior commander is at the time. Ryan's a little belligerent. I know this. Mm-hmm. You probably know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you come into the to the tent, or they come into the tent and say. Look, we're crossing we're crossing the canal to uh, get to company from Objective One on day one uh, this way. Well, he's going to be looking at it. He's not stupid. Mm-hmm. None of your squad leaders are stupid. JT Hine, they're not stupid. They can see another koa right there. Yeah, yeah. So what happens when they're like, "Well, what the fuck are we doing it that way?" Yeah, that's right. We <laughs> could do it this way, and just because you chose it that way. They want to do it the other way. Oh, yeah. Whereas, oh, yeah. hey, guys. Instant resistance. So there's a yeah. book called Battle Leadership. Little Yellow Pub. And they talk about, like, how to lead people. Not saying I use this with y'all. Oh, um, we already I, used I, it. Yeah, right. Y'all we covered it. Episode. Yeah, so, and, and again, I might screw it up. But, like, there are some people you lead. If you want them to do something, tell them to do something else. And mm-hmm. they will come up with the other option and do that. Some people, you just have to give them broad intent and they will attack. You leave them alone. And then some people, you have to tell them from A to Z exactly what to do. And they want you to tell them from mm-hmm, A to Z exactly mm-hmm. what to do. So you you have to know like uh, what your subordinate leaders' personalities are mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. lead them appropriately. Mm-hmm. You're still trying to develop them, but you want to lead them appropriately. Uh, this was not going to be a walk in the park Um did I have an idea? Of course I had an idea. I had an opinion. Uh, but at the end of the day, this this wasn't just us 40. We were going to have a lot of people on this operation with us. And, you know, when I'm given that order, I never really believe unless, you know, the situation calls for it. The order should not be the first time you're hearing me really talk about what we're about to do. Mm-hmm. You should already know mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. we're about to do. The order, I'm probably like. I'm doing it because you're supposed to it's do like it. It's like a formality. Do. Yeah, it's a bit of a formality. Um, but I think if you're doing it right, everybody's like, yep, I'm tracking. Mm-hmm. Already I'm done. Already tracking. Yep. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. Until we get to talk about the order? Mm. Probably not. Yeah, we can in a minute. I want to touch on battle leadership. You're talking about what, uh, Captain Adolf Von Schnell, right? Von Schnell, yeah. Von Schnell, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I like that book a lot more than a lot of people like that book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like I have a romantic attraction to the things in that book. I don't even think he liked it as much as I like. I'm like, are I you already, digging this? He's like, mm, yes. Yeah, right. He told me about it, and I was like, 
hold on. And I ran into my house and I went up in upstairs where I keep my books. And I'm like, I have the book already. Yeah. I've already read it like 10 years ago. Now I got to reread it. Yeah. No, no, no. I, you know, I read it. I read it and reread it and I brought it up to him and read it again. I'm like, bro, I think we can get an episode out of this. It's like our worst episode, right? It's like, actually, nobody it's likes pretty it. Good, pretty decent views. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Well, you know? it's okay. It's okay. And whatever. I don't care. I learned a lot out of it yeah. and I wish it was a book that I read as a sergeant. Yeah. I wish it was mandatory reading. Or something because, and even even at the end, one of the most one of my favorite parts of the book, and like tons of great stuff in there, things that even we've adopted, you know, with uh, you know the seniors that have been there before coming back, being the trainers, you yeah. know, the whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, but um, the captain's view of the American military at the end of the book mm-hmm. was my favorite part of the book. Yeah. Like big nod to the United States, but it was almost like that envious. I wish we could be that, but we're just because of our landlocked structure, we could never be that. Yeah. And because of that, we have to understand that we will never be as great as that. And that's like a humble, like a slice of humble pie for somebody at that time in that stature, leading those kind of men and then training the Germans afterwards on his things. He had this envious, this um, almost like a romantic attraction to the United States military in the way in which they structured themselves. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And more people should, you know, in my opinion, more NCOs should pick that book up and read that book. Yeah. If you're an NCO, pick the book up, read it. Uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. So speaking of speaking of books, we just, we just mentioned that one, one of my favorites, Battle Leadership. You brought it up earlier. But what's some other books before we get back to the grind that you would recommend or that you would find or have the opinion that it was imperative for an NCO the NCO, the NCO core to be reading and regurgitating with their brains. NCOs. Um, I'm a big fan of on combat. Mm. Uh, it's going to tell you about the, the human factors that your body will go through in the midst of combat. Uh, on killing is another one of them. Um, as we broaden it out to the broader NCO core, uh, even those that may or may not see combat alike, uh, the new stoic stuff, the obstacle is the way, mm. uh, all of Ryan Holiday's stuff, uh, to be able to deal with, you know, the hardship of leadership, what that contains, and then being able to control what you can control. Uh, so the obstacle to way is a book that I've given a lot of people, you know, it's short. It's a lot of awesome stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's it's easily digestible, but you know it's based off of stoicism uh, that's been around. A stoic philosophy been around for quite a long time, and I think even today leaders can benefit a bunch from reading that. Mm, I agree. I like Ryan Holiday a lot. You got obstacles away. Um, I really like his. I don't know if it's up there. Still, I gave him one of them to my brother. Stillness is the key. Yep. Uh, love that one. Yeah, I think those would be great. And I don't think books like this are on the Marine Corps reading list either, are they? I don't think so. Um, the Commandant's reading list changes every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't checked it. I don't think I've seen one of those on there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I may be wrong. Yeah, I really like it. Um, my brother put me on to Stoics um, maybe right after I got out. I was struggling with purpose. You know, my, my older brother was struggling with watching me struggle with purpose. He's trying to help me with that stuff. And he put me on the holiday, and that blew through him. Loved, loved it. Mm-hmm. Easy, you know. Had his own spin on, on people like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. I think I'm saying that right, and, and others. But 
things I never read about, things I never knew about. Them, but when I read them, made sense to me, you know, clicked to me. Um, so, so I like those ones a lot. What else? Um, you got a bunch of books. What all books did you bring with you over here? Um, I brought a few. I brought On War uh, by a guy named Karl von Clausewitz. Uh, he was a German military officer in the 1800s. Um, learned a lot from Napoleon mm. uh, as he was doing his thing in the late 1700s and 1800s. Uh, but everything that the Marine Corps reads and uh, develops in its doctrine, especially MCDP-1, kind of derives from this here. Uh, so as you can see, you can see how thick it is. Uh, but for anybody that considers himself a warfighter, uh, I'd highly recommend that you go through that entire book. Read the whole thing, but if you don't want to, read the first three books inside of that book, uh, and you're going to come away with a, a good appreciation of what war is. Mm. Because even though like the missiles change and technology changes, a lot of stuff does not change. And mm. There's no reason to learn the same lessons over and over again when people have you know written in blood uh, what you need to know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think another one of my favorites that I know was on the reading list I'm sure still is on the reading list was um with the old breed like yeah. with eb sludge and um and then in college i read um i did a world war ii specific class and i read a couple i read eb sledge's book in that again so i read it when i was a marine read it in college but they made us read um uh, helmet for my pillow mm -hmm. and uh and i learned a lot from that one that i you know wasn't so much for folklore that I knew about. It was like a lot of stuff I didn't know about yeah. um, that I really, you know, found appreciation for. And, and not to, not to divert too much into a rabbit hole here, but the amount in world war two that I learned about like propaganda campaigns and information campaigns, we see that now a lot going on with different things in different parts of the world, propaganda campaigns, uh, you know, to whatever, to make the other force look inferior or scare them or whatever the case. But we had a lot of that back then that, I had no clue about until I went to school and like learned to, you know, dug into it. So I thought that was wild, but a hey, reading NCOs, you know, guys that listen to this channel and, and watch this know that I'm, I'm huge on reading. So we're always going to hit that. Um, so we can get back to it now, Matt, you got anything before we, before we push on about on war, God forbid we become more dangerous from the stuff we've already learned. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. James Finney? He said That's that. James Finney. God forbid <laughs> we, we become more dangerous over the same material over time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gunner, Gunner, Gunner James Finney. Finney now, right. uh, Second Marine Division, as well as uh, shout out James Finney and uh, shout out Joey Betrico taking over at two two as a gunner over there. So um, big things coming from people that we fought wars with growing up, uh, being in the helm. You know, the decision-making senior tactical advisors to the Marine Corps right now. And that gives me a warm and fuzzy. So, uh, let's jump back into, let's jump back into you, uh, into your uh, leadership at second. You know, we haven't really went through the deployment. And I'll let you kind of br uh, brush over the SIG events from you. Uh, we've done it for both of us. We've done it for several guests. But I just want to kind of open it up to you after... Um, after we get in country and it's time to do business, I mean, kind of take me, take me through the emotions and, um, and let's say like the workflow, the op tempo, um, of course at the beginning was chaotic, but then kind of work us through that from your mind. Okay. Um, 
I know I remember, you know, there was a earthquake in Haiti, I think in January of 2010. And that was the last phone call I had with my parents. And, you know, we were checking up on family out there. Uh, but I did tell them, like, you probably won't hear from me for quite a while. Uh, and then February came around. And if y'all remember, I think, what, two or three nights straight, we got on the helos. Uh, and yeah. we never took off. So I don't know if that was some type of a deception plan or we just canceled it. Uh, but I remember uh, two or three nights in a row loading up all our gear, getting on the helos, and then somebody calling it off and then going back to the hooch, hitting the rack, and doing that a couple of times. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, like probably that third day, that third night, we took off, and I'm like... <gasps> Oh no, we're, act we're <laughs> actually going to do this. <laughs> and, you know, that, that Hilo ride was, you know, the most stressful and most peaceful thing ever, like at the same time. Talk on that. You know, uh, well, I grew up watching uh, We Were Soldiers. How more, like, even though I'm a Marine, he's like my favorite military officer mm, ever, mm. just from that movie and the book. Mm. And uh, I remember he was like, you know, last one on the bird, first one off. Mm -hmm. And like to me, all I wanted to do was just make sure I was the first one off because um, I knew what the threat was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, people probably think that was probably stupid because we literally thought like there were nothing but IEDs mm -hmm. where we were going to land. Uh, but felt like if we were going to set the tone had to show the marines that i was willing to risk myself just as much as i was about to let y'all know that you need to risk yourselves uh so you know zero three in the morning whenever we landed i was one of the first to freaking go knee deep in some mud <laughs> i'm like what what in the world is this that was the last thing we were you know thinking uh so just fighting through that friction realizing like all right this is it we're in the middle of you know, the the enemy's town and all the training was going to have to come to fruition here. Mm -hmm. um, we did that clear for the, you know, next few days. Uh, you guys did phenomenal. Met our first contact with the enemy over and over and over again. Uh, but years later, when I think about it, you know, you guys, you Marines did exactly what you all were taught. Mm -hmm. You know, and you guys uh, met violence with even more violence and it was, you know, precise. Um, so that was the privilege of being able to lead you all. And then really just the rest of that deployment with regards to dealing with the ANA. Mm. You know, we saw what happened on TV, you know, with the ANA and the Afghan army and Taliban last year or whatnot. But I do appreciate many of those soldiers that we served with mm -hmm. you know we we got to go on patrol with a lot of them and a lot of them were warriors oh yeah you know uh so i, I think about them a lot uh kind of where where they've been what they've done mm -hmm. um what struggles they've been through uh but i'm thankful that we had a good group you know a good group that was willing to go ahead and fight for what it is that they needed to fight for yeah i think especially on I think it was especially on the um, the first Kandak. The first Kandak we had, the invasion Kandak, Woundy and those guys. That was a completely different situation than the Kandak that replaced them when they took leave or, you know, whatever it was that they did. When we had those new guys come in, it was almost like the 
for me, it felt like the thrown together crew, the real quick, less vetted, um, less trained crew. And I, th I think that if my memory serves correct, which it usually doesn't, um, but Woundy used to talk about fighting, like what, with the 10th Mountain, was it? I mean, he talked about fighting all over the place. I think he had even fought the Russians at one point or yeah, something because like he, he was old. Yeah, he was he way was older like than... He was in his 40s or 50s. And he would talk about fighting different people, and, and, and that first group was just really... They were really good. The second group wanted to do, you know, like, uh, opium bakeouts before we go on patrol, and, you know, they just wanted to call the choppers when we got contact. Yeah. So is it that's so talk about that dynamic a little bit because we have a barrier in language, we have a barrier in um, culture, culture, uh, the way things are done, leadership wise, and and can you speak to that uh, a little bit with the Marines? Anywhere we go, it's kind of like that. So, um, yeah, um, having to, you know, the forty Marines in that platoon, I looked at you all like my brothers, little mm -hmm. brothers, mm -hmm. older brothers, whatever the case may be. And then having to partner up uh, with the unit that we cannot necessarily communicate very well with, uh, it took a lot of trust, mm -hmm. you know, it took a lot of trust. Um, and I would say for the ones that we landed with, uh, that trust was there. And they had know? to trust us a lot too. Yeah, the trust was mm -hmm. there. Uh, they trusted us. Mm -hmm. They knew that we were here in order to assist them and facilitate in what they needed to do. And uh, they were doing the same thing for us. So it was kind of cool to see, you know, two groups of warriors get together, mm -hmm. even with this language barrier, uh, in order to, to fight a common enemy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I do want to point out, we talked a little bit about, you know, those first combat actions or whatever. But something I think about a lot throughout that whole deployment, and even the second one, is uh, all those 18 and 19-year-olds that would walk point <laughs> on the patrols. You know, I think about, you know, like Wetzel and, you know, whoever took point on patrol after patrol after patrol. Frodo, um, that was impressive. Hmm. You know, to be so young and to take lead on countless patrols, knowing that the person in the front was going to take the most risk. Uh, it was never me. Right. <laughs> you know, it was never me. And now when I think about it, it's like, wow, there was always an 18 year old Marine, 19 year old Marine leading the rest of us. Mm -hmm. You know, so that just shows like the the national treasures that we have in the marine corps that are willing to walk point for us you know and it's pretty incredible there um the marines that would sweep you know the places that we thought were filled with ieds whenever we would hit an ied in a vehicle the first marines that would get out and sweep to make sure there weren't other ones you know uh i do want to make sure if any of those marines hear this like i still think about y'all uh, y'all are some of the most bravest ones uh, out there, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I don't forget those things. No, oh, fact, fact. I think a lot of people. Well, I talk about this too much, probably, but you know, it's one thing to realize that there's 18 year olds at war, um, doing things. You don't know about these things. You don't know what they're. They're going to war. It's another thing to watch 18 year old boys. I say boys because that's that's really what I've come to believe about it. Like they're boys, they're men. I'm not saying they're not men, but they're so young 
and people just don't realize what they do for them you know so and that's what it is when you say national treasures i say that i say that frequently too because it's what it is and and we're one generation away from everything falling apart if you don't have those guys walking point um this all you know doesn't doesn't happen anymore so very important what else um what else significant events from 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 the deployment stick out to you well, a lot, you know, um, obviously February 21st, 2010, will always stick out, you know, when uh, uh, we lost our first Marine, Matthias Hansen, mm-hmm. um, you know, another national hero there, uh, just hearing over the radio what was going on. Uh, but then knowing that we had lost a Marine or were on the verge of losing a Marine, the, the fighting spirit that the platoon continued mm-hmm. showing despite mm-hmm. that, you know, you would think. You know, you hear over the radio that one of your Marines have been killed. That's probably going to shut down the rest of the attack. Uh, but we went on for several hours after that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and that makes me think of, you know, the Battle of Bella Wood in 1918 during World War One, where, you know, Dan Daly, Gunnery Sergeant Dan Daly, Marines are getting shot in the middle of the field. Marines are dying. Marines are wounded. You know, and they didn't want to get up and move. They didn't want to move from cover. Mm-hmm. And what did he say? We remember? Get up, you sons of bitches. Do you want to oh, live forever? <laughs> and, you know, we say that and we read the books and we say that during the ball. Like, we say, oh, rock, get up, you sons of bitches. Do you want to live forever? But, like, really realize, like, what was the situation? Like, what, yeah. what, what was going on that made him have to say that in the middle of the open field? Mm-hmm. One, they wouldn't move. Two, you either stay there and you're going to die, or you might as well die attacking the Germans and taking it over. Right there. No, it makes me think of Dave Brown when we, record, when we recorded him and they're in just uh, a book up there, Battle Lines. It's, it's absolutely unconscionable to me because the firefights that I had and the times that I was pinned down, when I read his works and I listen to him talk, it was so much worse for him. Yeah, and so if he he would talk about how when he's doing interviews with these guys afterwards to try to put these books together, this guy and this guy were in the same team. They were on different sides of the rice paddy when an ambush happened, so they remembered everything completely different. Same team didn't know if their team was live, dead. Every time they popped their head up, they're getting smoked by automatic machine gun right you know fire, and it's like yeah, like. There's a paralysis that can come with that on the battlefield when you start watching your friends explode, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and then there's those guys, those special guys, you know, that say, get up, you sons of bitches, you know, because you knew they would die right there if they didn't move. Mm-hmm. And they had half a chance if they did, you know, so. And the thing behind that is they did. Mm-hmm. They got up and moved, mm-hmm. you know, because a Marine leader or Marine NCO told them to. Mm-hmm. Um and in many, many ways, that's exactly what happened that day. Mm. We continued to get up and move. We continued to move out. And for the rest of that deployment, you guys continued to move out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Joey Frodo and uh, Wetzel and all those Marines at lead point, they continued to move out in po- at point despite mm-hmm. whatever happened the last patrol. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that's why it's like it's, it's important not to take for granted the fact that everybody went against their human nature every single day. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we run towards the sounds of the guns. Actually, like, 
You're not supposed to. <laughs> like for real, you're not yeah, supposed, you're supposed to. to the base of fire you know, if I'm actually giving any advice to anybody right now, if gunfire was to happen outside, we, we should go the other way. Like that is actually the best thing to do, right? So whether it's through training or through pride or whatever the case may be, we've never seen somebody do the opposite. They ran towards the sounds of the guns. And that's something we should never take for granted. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. just happen. Because mm-hmm. guess what? In warfare, a lot of people will drop their weapons and run. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- that never happened with you all. So, Leadership leadership can stem a lot of that, in my opinion. Not Dan Daly, and perfect example. You have a leader, oh, like a Joe Wright, that said, so what? You know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Um, I just had something that I was going to ask, and I lost my train of thought. Um, I'll cut this out of there. Break, break. Yeah. No, hang on. It was important, though. Oh, man. It was one of those that I was, like, hanging on to, like, oh, as soon as he stops, I'm going to have to slip this in. This is going right along with it, and just vanished. Okay, well, we'll cut it out later. We'll keep moving on. Um, I, oh, yeah, I got it right now. So, one thing one thing that uh, falls in line with what you're saying about they keep going out is um, when you lose somebody, they keep going out, you know? Like, that's something that always got me. I didn't, like, there was times I didn't want to go out, obviously, and I didn't tell people that. But, uh, you know, like, the 21st, you put somebody on a bird alive, you expect them to be alive. That's just kind of like what you think as a grunt. Get them on the bird, they're going to get to the next echelon of care. And if we put them on there alive, they got a great shot. Um, you know, and when that goes south and you find out, whatever, hours later that that didn't work out very well, and then you got to tell people, you know, their friends, um, their, their best friends, and then you got to go back out. And then tomorrow you got to go back out. And then the next day you got to go back out. And that is what is, uh, it's beautiful. That's a love and it's a beautiful commitment to, uh, you know, each other, to fellow warfighters. You got to do it together and you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had a choice, maybe some people wouldn't have done it. Maybe some people would be like, no, nah, I'm going to see him through or, you know, if they had that choice. I don't know if anybody in second would have left. You know, the great thing about the Marine Corps and a lot of, you know, units like second, uh, by ourselves, we wouldn't have went out there, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, But the the expectation was greater than the fear. The expectation of like, no, we're we're going back out, like not tomorrow, like tonight. Mm-hmm. in a few hours from now from mm-hmm. any tragedy that may occur we're, we're going back out like immediately um and i fully believe it's because when you look to your left and to your right there were people you didn't want to you know let down mm-hmm. no it's 100 um, percent. so that's why cohesion is so important you know you you want to be able to ensure that you're willing to fight and die for something and and clearly you know the marines and second platoon were willing to do that mm-hmm. and any any great organization is willing to put it all on the line in order to accomplish what it is they need to accomplish mm-hmm. so you never want to take that for granted because again like that's not something that's just automatic it must be bred and then sustained mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 
talk to me about, um, I know he wasn't in our platoon, but talk to me a little bit about Joey Harms. Yeah. Um, Staff Sergeant Harms was a squad leader in third platoon. Um, combat veteran, I believe he had, you know, went to Iraq before and did some good things. Um, in many ways, I feel like he was one of the squad leaders in that entire company that was like a a mentor to mm. a lot of the other squad leaders. Mm. You know, uh, I remember having conversations with him as a platoon commander, going over to him and just talking to him about his experiences, and you could just tell, like, okay, this this Marine has got it uh, going on. Um, he's got it figured out. His Marines trusted him. His Marines loved him. His platoon commander uh, trusted him a ton, mm-hmm. um, and he was more than just a squad leader. He he was an NCO in Kilo Company. Mm-hmm. You know, he had kilo company type of influence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, obviously, sadly, you know, he, he he was struck with a terminal illness and, and died a few years back. Um, was able to go to the funeral and, and check all of that out. But to see the outpouring of love of people, show, people showing up uh, and during the time of him being sick, just the fighting spirit that he <laughs> that he kept mm-hmm. surgery after surgery, fighting to stay alive. Uh, you know, it's very, very inspirational. In many ways, that was more heroic and more brave than almost anything I've seen on any battlefield before. Because, uh, yeah. you know, he, in many ways, he was in a bad way. But if you call him, you know, he, he's trying to, like, pep you up and try <laughs> to find out what's going on with you, uh, what positive is going on in your life. You know, so mm-hmm. when whenever you're blessed with, somebody like a Joey Harms, you know, you kind of look at yourself and kind of think about, hey, what is it that I have to complain about? You know? mm, mm. Yeah, I learned, um, he was he was a mentor to me. Like you said, he was, he was, he was the Kilo Company NCO to me. You know what I mean? Like, if I had a question, it, we talked tactics every single time we were together, try to f- find a way to better kill the enemy faster. Um, yeah, Joey Harm, shout out there, wherever you're at, dude. Big influence on a lot of people. He, the, the most heroic thing Joey ever did was in his death. His death was heroic to a lot of people because of the fighting spirit, the the never quit spirit. I remember one time he had just got out of some baster, basting his whole body up like with this chemo treatment. And he sends me pictures. He had got new tennis shoes. He just come out of it, and he's walking around Times Square. He's like, "I got new tennis shoes. Check these kicks out." Mm. And I'm like, "Man, you, like, they don't make them like you. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're not that. You're not normal. Like, somebody didn't call me to be happy and pick me up after they just got out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's the kind of person he was. Always, he was like that yeah. on the battlefield. He's like that when we got home. Uh, people like that made the Marine Corps. Yeah, they still, they still make the Marine Corps. And when you get out. Whether you get out on your own, you know, wishes or, or not, when you get out, that's what you remember, mm-hmm. the people. You yeah. don't remember the games. You don't remember the rosters. You don't, but you remember the people, you know, and he was just one of those wonderful people. You yeah, know? for sure. So, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about the, the dynamic in um, uh, going like, let's say, three weeks steady combat every day to like full stop CAG operations. 
Yeah. Um, it wasn't something that we were trained for. Uh, you know, in some weird, maniacal way. Just thought it was going to be seven months of straight kinetics, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but when we started getting tasked with, you know, having to do some building here, working with people over here, you know, uh, it was less of the expectation. But, you know, uh, that's also a part of warfare. Mm, very you know, important part. Yeah, not necessarily just going in and, and breaking everything. It's It's trying to you know, clean up the collateral damage and and get to some sort of an acceptable peace. Like mm. that's the purpose of war. The purpose of war is actually to get to an acceptable level of peace. You just so happen to be using violence at the time to get there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so any student of war would know like, you know, just going out, fighting, getting in firefights, killing, like is not the purpose in and of itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it's fully expected that there would come some point where we would have to work with, you know, civil affairs to get Marja back up on its feet and, and wherever, you know, political leaders believes it needs to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I know that in like hindsight. But, yeah, of course, it was a bit of a shock back then. Sure. You know what? <laughs> I want to talk about this with you and you. I don't know if we've talked about it. Man, I hated it. I hated getting stuck there. I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. Yeah. I can't express how much I hated being stuck there. The rest of the company's out laying people out, right, and doing what we're supposed to do, and we're stuck, and I hated it. But, like in hindsight, when I think about it, we owned that battle space. We knew the battle space. It was our yard. It wasn't any other company mm-hmm. there. There wasn't any other platoon that knew that battle space like we did. Yeah. So it only made sense that they say, hey, who's running this battle space where the cop is going to be built? Oh, second. Second's going to stay, then they'll rip our guys in when we're ready. It makes sense to me now. Yeah. Oh, at the time, it did not make any sense to me. Well, you know, you got to trust your <laughs> leadership. Lieutenant Colonel Christmas clearly knew what he was doing. Sure. Um, yeah. He knew he had the end state in mind, and, you know, hindsight being 2020, he knew that he needed certain units to be doing certain things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's that's our job. You know, go overseas if it's to fight, if it's to stabilize. Those are all within the things that we get trained for uh, to mm-hmm. do. Sometimes you're fighting, sometimes you're stabilizing, uh, but you got to be capable of doing both. Um, for sure. And for you guys that are hidden, there's going to come a time when you're downrange and you get full stop or you get a CAG affairs team, your civil civil affairs team with you that's got to go pay somebody or have a Shura. And you can get mad about it. You could buck it, but it's necessary. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, I guess why I want to talk about that so much is like, when you got a bunch of dogs going full go, 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 and then you stop them, like complacency, it was a big thing we had to fight against, um, especially during the time of Civil Affairs Group. You know, we had an ND that shot a squad leader. <laughs> That's some complacency. Mm. We had... Um, um, you know, failed time hack. Some of my Marines not waking up on time to get to a, get to a, what was it? An airfield, you know, we're securing LZ for a chopper to come in and blowing timelines. And it's like, that's nothing of what we did for the first three weeks. We never blew a timeline. Everybody was where they were supposed to be or people died. 
And I think that's part of it. Like, you know that, oh, now we're playing games, you mm -hmm. know, and now we're here doing stupid shit. And that's the way you think about it. But it's just as deadly as the shit she was doing yesterday. All it takes is one person come inside that CAG place with a bomb, you know, somebody being complacent, not see them, um, things of that nature. So when your guys have to slow down, you know, in my opinion, it's imperative to fill that time. You know, you need the proper rest. You need the proper recovery. But once that's had, it's like fill that time up. Don't let that. You know, idle time is the devil's playground, I say. So fill that up. Keep the mission. Keep the purpose. And what do you have on that? Would you agree? No, I absolutely agree. <coughs> you know, just like you said, complacency kills. Uh, a lot of times you're you're on your best when it's most violent, when mm -hmm. the threat to you is at its worst. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you perceive that, you know, that, that threat is no longer there, again, that's just your perception. Mm -hmm. uh, your mission might have changed, but the enemy still has a mission against you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, of course, when when the tempo kind of slowed down, uh, that's where, you know, leadership squad leaders, platoon commander, platoon sergeant kind of has to, you know, ramp up, mm -hmm. you know, recock the discipline, uh, start expecting little things. And that's why the Marine Corps is what it is today. That's why in garrison during peacetime, we're so you know, anal about the uniforms or so anal about being on time or so anal about our physical fitness mm. or so anal about everybody's going to show up online at zero six thirty in the morning. All right. We're going to have perfect accountability. We're going to do all of these little things uh, because all those things translate to combat in one way or another, mm -hmm. you know, in one way or another. And I think sometimes we, we get it lost in translation. Like if we don't connect the things that we do, in the everyday Marine Corps and give that why as to why we do those things and we mm -hmm. don't connect it to combat, you know, then it just seems like an annoyance. Mm -hmm. you I know? agree. Um, I so agree. it's up to NCOs and, you know, staff NCOs to kind of keep that alive moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I know a lot of the, um, like when you go to, um, like, let's say graduation of a school or a boot camp, things like that, they kind of read off that, you know, the muskets of yesteryear, and it was the best close order drill train combat unit that that inflicted the most damages and the least amount of casualties on the battlefield. And that's saying that and saying that when you focus on the little things and you get the little things right every time and you're perfect at the practice every time, then when you get to these big things, you're going to pay attention. You know, you're going to have that closer eye. And they'd say that ceremonially at these things, and I'd hear it, but it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that group that can drill and look like one unit and one soul element, you know, one, you know, one giant piece with a million moving parts, but it's all moving exactly right. It makes sense that that would be the most disciplined unit. And then the most disciplined unit focusing on the small things is going to be the best um, disciplined unit in, in all regards. So... I always thought about that uh, after, you know, I always think about a lot of things after I took it for granted when I was in like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get through the ceremony. Yeah. There's uh, a lot of examples of that. Um, there's a lot of examples in sports. I don't know if y'all are familiar with who John Wooden is. Mm -hmm. uh, 10 time, I think 10 time or 11 time NCAA basketball champion head coach for UCLA Bruins, mm -hmm. probably the greatest coach to have ever lived. And he's like coaching the best players to have ever lived. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like the best players that ever lived. And every single year before the season started, he would teach them how to wear their socks. He would teach them how to tie their shoes. 
he would teach them exactly how he expected practice to go. Mm-hmm. Like these are already world class athletes because they were high school McDonald All Americans. But whenever you got over there, he was going to teach you the basics again, even though you thought you had the basics taken care of. Mm-hmm. There's another guy, Jim Walsh. He's a NFL, you know, football coach, and you know, legend has it that every year. The first thing he does is he puts up a football and he's like, gentlemen, this is a football. These are the laces. And it makes me think about when we came back from our first deployment or even when the platoon before we got together, got back from their deployment. I always found it weird that the first training exercise was we had to teach them weapons handling. These Marines that just came off of patrolling Fallujah. I had to decide whether or not they were qualified on, you know, handling their weapons. Right. And you can't be afraid to do that Mm -hmm. because every good organization breaks it back down to those basics because anything that is great that happens is made up of a bunch of little things, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, That time when we had to go back down and uh, start doing civil affairs stuff. That was a great opportunity to break it down, go back to the basics, let some other Marines lead some patrols, right, and and really just continue to refine our skills to whenever we would need them again. You know, that's a good point. And I think about there were multiple different team leaders taking patrols down to the bazaar and different things at that time when it was not safe, but op-tempo slowed. And I think that paid dividends, you know, even in that, that deployment later on. You know, at some point in the deployment, we broke into sections, maybe a little bit before CAG, and they got some patrolling, got some OP time in, stuff like that, felt out who was going to take care of the reins in each squad because our AO was so big, then the CAG thing. But then later on, I mean, he ran patrols out of OPs later on, and, 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 and those things early in the deployment, I think, were good for confidence. And, and then they're good for, like, your opens your playbook up a little bit. Um if you're thinking about like a team that's pressing down, once they get into the red zone, playbook closes up a little bit. They only have a couple of things. For us, when we had other uh, personnel within the squads that now are experienced and now could run this on their own, then that opens playbook up when we have to have, a, have an attack or you know multiple squads have to meet up and there has to be an engagement, things like that. So um, I think it's a great point. When things slow down, use that as the opportunity to pop that cherry on some of those junior leaders um, and extend that responsibility, delegate that down because it's going to pay off later, be a net positive for the whole unit. So, yeah, that's huge. What are, what are the SIG events you take out of Riley? Riley was kind of crazy. We had an op tempo where it was like 10 days of patrol, 10 days of post, standing on the actual cop there, and then 10 days of uh, what, like patrol cycle essentially, right? OPs, yeah, security, so OP, and then... post, and patrol. Yep. Yeah. What do you got for there? And I guess that for you is a little bit different because now it's more of like watch officer tracking squads. So kind of kind of talk on that piece a little bit as a young platoon commander. Um, yeah, so getting back with the company um, at that point for most of the deployment was able to fight the platoon because it was just us and mm-hmm. just, you know, do everything with you all. Uh, but once we got back as a company, you know, us, us lieutenants, we had to circle up. And, you know, we got tasked with being watch officers. So I think there were like eight hour shifts. 
So it was like the first time where, you know, my Marines can go out on patrol and I'm not allowed to really go with them. Yeah, you how's know? that? Uh, it's weird. You know, it's very, very weird. And then you guys are getting in contact and all I've got is a radio, right? <laughs> um, but again, that just shows how how well-trained y'all were, mm-hmm. how ready y'all were. And I think you all understood the expectations with or without me, what was expected of you all. Mm-hmm. You know, and the more and more I think about it, like that workup where for two years we thought we were going to Japan, that was probably one of the best things, the best could things that could happen. Because mm-hmm. for two years we got to train together. I found that out a year ago, maybe. What, that it was that long? Yeah. No, Franco. Franco, Franco. when I went to, I went down to South Palm or to West Palm Beach or Cocoa Beach where Adam's living and we had our, when we had our talk, we had talked about that offline a little bit and he said the same thing. He's like, everybody could have been pissed about it because it's super long workup, whatever. He's like, fuck that. We had two years to get tight, two years to train, two years worth of ranges. And to be honest, my op tempo on average for my first four deployments was seven in, seven out. Yeah. I came home, went on like 20 something days of leave. Came back right into a six month workup to go on post deployment or pre deployment yeah. leave and push again. Yeah. And so to get two years with the same teams virtually, I mean, there's some moving that happens in that, yeah. you know, yeah. not while I was here, but there was some moving <clears throat> around of personnel, some ins and outs. Um, but and, and it's, it goes back to like what, what I talk about a lot on here with SF, right? My romantic fantasies of SF were because everybody wanted to be there. Everybody was good as each other. And then they have this thing where they stay together multiple years and train multiple years and go on multiple deployments in the same billets. And I think that's what makes them dangerous. Now, I understand that the regular infantry is different by way of nature and by construct. It can't work exactly that way. Um, but when you take a unit, that's there's no question that when you take a unit... The longer that they can be together, cohesively training towards one goal, the better that they will be. You can, I think maybe, you know, force designs looking at that, and maybe that's a little bit of some of the changes coming up, maybe not. Um, but I think it's smart, and I think that definitely it showed, at least on that deployment in that time with those people, it showed because the people that relieved us, I don't know what their workup looked like. I don't know if it was two years like, you know, th- like 3-6 had. Um, but they struggled more than we did. And and that could do a lot with the enemy, and, and there's a lot of different variables that could go into that. But um, seemingly to me, if I just look at, look at it and I say, well, they had a two-year workup where they were all together versus the seven-month workup, it would be obvious to me that the two-year workup are going to be tighter. They're going to be more trained. They're going to be more SOP sound with themselves. So I like that. That's the romantic side of SF that I like. Yeah, in general, in general, the longer you can keep people together and train them as hard as possible together, you're going to build a cohesive unit. Uh, They are going to be unbreakable when they're the enemy's trying to break them. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why we see and hear a lot of these stories of, you know, these six man teams, 12 man teams that went out together and did damn near the impossible. Um, they mm-hmm. definitely were together for a very, very long time. There's a saying out there like, you know, uh, you could find four individual champion boxers, um, but if they don't know each other, uh, you're better off going against those four than four brothers. 
you know, because those four brothers are like literally willing to die for each other. They mm -hmm. understand each other. They know each other's weaknesses. And though individually they are less capable than the boxer, like uh, together they, they form a, a much tighter unit, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and that's what we're looking you know, to uh, develop as Marines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My dad used to say he had four four boys originally. You got more now, but originally there was four of us, and he used to say that like individually you're one strand. And I look at the infantry line the same way, almost like the squads. You know, like you're one team, and that's one strand. But three teams in a corpsman, that's a rope. Mm -hmm. It's way harder to cut a rope, mm -hmm. pull the rope apart than it is to pull the threads of of a strand. You know, and he used to tell us that all the time. And that's going back. I'm hopping now, but that kind of goes back to the coaching aspect. Like when I coach my kids, I coach two teams right now. They're young kids, but we do everything um, as a team, right? And 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 it's one thing to do everything as a team. It's another thing um, to explain to the team why you do everything as a team. And so at the beginning of every practice, you know, we're doing calisthenics and it's like, no. So I'll do it like a Marine Corps kind of thing. Maybe some of the parents don't like it, but I'll be like, one. One, two, two, three, yeah, three. Come on, girls, you know, because they're little girls, eight-year-old girls, eight-year-old boys. It's like, hey, we do everything as a team because we're going to win this team. We're going to lose as a team. We're going to do everything as a team, and it's not going to be finger pointing. It's not going to be none of that. So we're always going to count together, stretch together, throw together, train together. That's what we are. We are all one. It doesn't work if just one of us has a good good game. We all need to have a good game. And so – Anyway, I just jumping back to coaching, that's something that flicked in my head because it's important that they know that from a young age. And, uh, and so I, I push that a lot. And anyway, is there anything um, just of like imperative importance that you learned through the deployment uh, that we haven't spoke to yet? Um, you know, I think, I think as a combat veteran, it's important to just make sure uh, – that we're pushing lessons learned for those that have to do it in the future. Mm -hmm. um, something I read before we went to combat and something that I've read after and something that I think about when it comes to training, the importance of training. Uh, there's a book called Training for the Fight mm -hmm. uh, by a guy named Master Sergeant Howe. Uh, he's in the Army. And the story goes... Um, He's a special forces element leader. They're about to do a uh, a takedown of a high value target. Go ahead and snatch this high value target in the middle of the night. And two helos are going to land. One helo on top of one building and another on top of another. And they had rehearsed this drill over and over and over again. They had mock buildings. They knew exactly what the buildings were going to be made up of. They knew everything about the plan, every single detail. That was their expectation. That's how much they had trained to it. The day goes. They have to conduct a mission. Two helos land. <clears throat> Boom. Immediately, one of the specialists, MVGs, you know, has him discombobulated, and he doesn't know where he is. And he looks across the way, and he can see some targets on top of an adjacent building. Uh-uh. And he takes a couple shots. Boom, boom. And right over the, oh, right over the hook, Master and Howe is, what the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? It's friendlies. Friendlies. Cool. No more fire. 
They conduct the mission. They get the high value targets, load them up in a bird and make it back to the fob forward operating base. All right, cool. So they do the debrief. The mission is a success. You know that that takedown took about, you know, 30 minutes or whatever the case may be. Uh, but Massar and Howe didn't forget what happened like right in the beginning. So after the debrief calls that specialist over. And he gives them two pieces of paper. The first one was a counseling, a negative counseling for not knowing the plan. We had practiced this over and over again. We did confirmation briefs until we were blue in the face. Everybody said they understood the plan. Even if your MVGs, you know, ran out of battery. One, you should have checked those MVGs. Two, you should know and understand that we were the ones that were across the way. Sign that. Specialist signs it. Then he gives them another negative counseling. What do you think the negative counseling was for? Marksmanship. Missing the shot. Missing the shot. And that's like the level of expectation that Master and Howe had for his soldiers, you know, for his operators, mm-hmm. you know, and that is the level of training and the level of uh, purpose that we have to take towards everything that we do. You know, it's not a game what we train for. You know, the, the final score is actually final. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you don't necessarily get to, to recock that thing. The final score is the final score. And uh, whoever doesn't make it, you know, to the next game, it's 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 forever. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the books that I tend to push to people moving forward. Um, make sure that you train your NCOs to the best of your ability and make sure that they understand that. They have all of your trust. Mm all right because no matter what as a as a unit leader you can't do it by yourself the marine corps doesn't expect you to do it by yourself that's why you have a ton of other people that wear blood stripes as well mm-hmm, cuz mm-hmm. once you wear the blood stripe the expectation goes that you can now lead not only yourself but you can lead other people to get something very difficult done uh so Put as much of that responsibility onto those NCOs moving forward and, you know, get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then simply, no matter how long we are out of combat as a Marine Corps, as a service, um, always know that it's, it's knocking on the door. Mm-hmm. And as long as everybody is training towards that, we're going to be just fine. Whenever we let complacency actually slip in and and our culture turns into a nine to five type of culture, that's when we will be in trouble. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we're there at all yet. Um, and as long as we, we stay healthily, what's the word? We should have a little bit of paranoia always as if like the next time is, is just, you know, a moment's notice away. Yeah. Um, I think that's the reality of it. Yeah. I mean, we could say as much as we want that we're going to know when, you know, the strikes come in. If the other country's doing their job right, we don't know. We don't have a clue. Oh. If we're doing our job right, right intelligence-wise, we will have some heads up, right? But don't count on it. Train train like it's your last stop every time. Um, for sure. So let's get past that. Your next deployment, you're going to go as an XO, right? Is that from the beginning? 
For Marja 2, you're an XO? Oh, yeah. I was a XO. So after deployment, came back as a platoon commander, um, went over to Weapons Company and became their XO. And then what was it, like 10 months later, we were back in Marja. And this is where you serve underneath? Captain Getz. Yeah, he was my SPC a few years prior. What's that like checking into him? That was cool. Yeah, I bet. Um, that was cool. Um, I think it was surreal for both of us, right? Because the last time he had seen me, I was, you know, some second lieutenant that didn't even know how to put his rank on his collar. <laughs> and, you know, now coming off of, you know, my first combat deployment and I'd like to think I was, you know, telling them some stuff about the battalion and teaching them about the battalion. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But more importantly, on the flip side, he was bringing now 10 to 12 years worth of experience. Actually, he was a prior. So probably at that point, 17 years worth of experience um, to continue molding me. So he had two two touch points with being able to develop me as a Marine officer. So a lot of, you know, what I do today has to do with him. Gets. Yeah. Sweet. Um, I've talked to a couple of the, you know, the Marines that went to Marja to either with Kilo company or, or, you know, thereabouts, one of them in India company, completely different dynamic going back, you know, a year later. Yeah. Yeah. It was a different deployment. Um, no deliberate operation, like operation monster rock, like much of the U S knew that thing was going down. Um, the second time, a lot more stability operations, uh, to be clear, everybody mixed it up a few times mm -hmm. over there. Mm -hmm. uh, Marja was definitely not um, Disney World. Uh, but the work that was done during that first deployment and then the battalions that came after us did a decent job kind of stabilizing it out. Uh, so the mission kind of shifted just as dangerous. We encountered a lot more IEDs at that point. Um, mm -hmm. the, the firefights kind of tamped down, but the IED threat was still there. Mm -hmm. But, but again, we were trying to turn that bad boy over to the ANA, the ANCOP, all of those forces. So mm -hmm. our mission just kind of adjusted. How was the ANA on the second one and the ANCOP? Were they better? Same? Same. Yeah. You know, uh, at our tactical level, uh, they, they were great team players, wanted mm -hmm. to fight. Um, never had any real pushback on going on patrols, doing operations. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, we we were lucky our two deployments uh, to get very very <clears throat> willing and and strong fellow you know warriors to do things on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. Now, did y'all have opposites for weapons company as well? A and A. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Was it the same construct company-wise and, like, um, I guess um, operationally? We're still uh, running patrols out. We're still, like, I assume most of that was the same, but did you operate in any of the same places? Actually, I was in uh, Sistani. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Weapons Company was in control of all of Sistani Peninsula. Uh, so it was nothing but squad OPs. And we spent, you know, the whole deployment making sure those squad OPs had what they needed uh, and major lines of oper lines of communication or major roads ran from Sistani into Marja proper. 
So our big job was making sure that those roads were clear of IEDs and kind of like what we did on that first deployment with the pickets and mm-hmm. all that good mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, so a lot of that um, and then a lot of denying the Taliban the ability to influence, you know, the populace in Sistani. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was cool to see something different yeah. um, and support support the Marja piece just from a different vantage point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have any second Marines? You didn't have, you went to weapons company, so I assume nobody came over there with you. No. Yeah. Okay. Check. And, and what's the um, uh, going from being a lieutenant, a platoon commander that's going out there and mixing it up, kind of like on the daily, to being somebody that's primarily, or or maybe you weren't, but what's the XO operations how, like? The differences between PC and XO. Yeah, platoon commander. Your job is to fight the platoon. <coughs> you got three squad leaders, and you know you're looking for the next enemy position, and you, you're pushing towards it. As a XO, your job is to pretty much be like the operations officer of the company and run the logistics of the company so mm-hmm. that that company commander can fight those platoons. Weapons company usually has, you know, your senior lieutenants, your senior staff and CEOs, so those platoons are a little, a little bit more experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, our 81s, yep, they, they had their 81s, but they were pretty much a, a heavier, more experienced rifle platoon because a lot of what we did was patrolling same thing with cat um they used their vehicles a little bit more but you know they had to be ready to get on foot as well because that was just the ao that we were operating in yeah uh and my job was to coordinate the patrols coordinate the logistics make sure that all of the ops had what they need the resources um dealing with the money uh dealing with the populace it's just seeing that vantage point besides, you know, the three patrols a day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that makes your, you know, your view a whole lot bigger. Huh? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Something I wish I would have done better about when I was, um, when you know, when we were there, when I was there, is being able to suck up out of my view and get a bigger, you know, zoom my scope out or zoom my lens out that was so hard for me and then looking back on it it's like understanding my ao i could have understood the ao better if i'd have zoomed out um just one level let alone a couple of levels and i think some some of the best leaders are able to do that in in real time they're able to hit pause kind of zoom out see it and then come back in uh can you speak on that at all well yeah uh you know one of my good buddies uh told me this was after the deployments, but it stuck with me. Uh, he says, your mental location should never be the same place as your physical location. You know, so like you may literally be, you know, sitting somewhere in Marja, Afghanistan or whatever the case may be. But you should be thinking, you know, two steps ahead or mm-hmm. two levels up mm-hmm. um, or reflecting on two steps back, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and what that means is. Always trying to think about how your actions today are going to have second and third order effects moving forward. Sometimes mm-hmm. we just think, hey, what's the next thing you need me to do? What's the next mm-hmm. patrol? Mm-hmm. What's the next you know, river we're getting across? What's the next bridge we're going to sweep? Uh, but all that are just you know, a series of actions that are supposed to lead to something bigger mm-hmm. and something greater. Now, do you have... Um, I don't know if I remember this right, but I feel like... Um, RXO Calistra, Captain Cal- or Lieutenant Calistra then, I'm sure it's not that now, but 
um, he had like fire sports um, developed in our COC in mm-hmm. our talk at Riley, and I always that was the first time I'd seen that. I've been on other combat deployments. I never seen that. Mm-hmm. Did you replicate that? We did some very similar things. Um, we had an arrow or a fac uh, ogre uh, brought in quite a few F-18s to, to do some good work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, fires was something else we would integrate because we had platoons out doing patrols. Mm-hmm. So before you could go out on your patrol, you had to make sure that, you know, you had your pre-planned fires and all of that good stuff. Um, making sure the checkpoints tied into those fires, make sure we had air on station before they went on patrol and mm-hmm. or air that could come in, you know, support if they got into a, an issue. So, mm-hmm. yeah, all of those lessons learned from the first deployment, for sure, we, we brought it up mm-hmm. to to the second. Mm-hmm. That was one of the greatest things I've ever seen when I walked into the Riley um, COC, and I look up, and it's our GRGs, you know, that we would carry, but the entire AO, yeah. all on one wall, mm-hmm. all with the fires, you know, pre-registered targets, you know, um, areas of interest, intersections, and houses we've taken fire from before. And it really was able to, every time you went into the COC, you were able to gauge what was going on via that, you know, that battle rhythm or the tracker. And um, I'm sure other units I was in had something of that nature. Maybe I was too junior and it was out of my purview and I wasn't able to see it, you know, whatever. But I know that in Marge, it got to a point where me and him could get ready to prep a patrol. I bring him and I bring Wetzel. And while Wetzel's getting routes, and making checkpoints he's getting registered targets on close to those checkpoints and support systems and checking with you know our fact at the time to see what what's going on what do we have and just became a system and it was a good system mm-hmm. and uh so i want to see if that if that continued to carry on if you guys aren't doing that you should be doing that uh, something like it i know you are um uh, what's next after you leave three six you know like what you come home from that deployment what's after that for you uh, so after that, um, and more admin came out, told me that I was going to go to school with the army for six months and, uh, went to Fort Benning in 2012 after the second deployment, spent six months there at the maneuver captain's career course, um, got to hang out with uh, a good, strong group of army officers, mostly infantry officers, a ton of Rangers, got a big respect from them um, or out of them Uh, after that moved up to Virginia and spent three years teaching at the basic school so that same school that we talked about in the beginning Mm -hmm. of this podcast Uh, spent one year um, doing a little bit of instructing and then being an SPC and then two years of those three years as an instructor at the infantry officers course so it was kind of cool to kind of come full circle Right. You learned from them. You went out, you experienced it. And then now you have lieutenants that you're you're developing and and teaching as well. So it really couldn't have worked out better because I feel like in 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 many ways, I had a lot to give after those couple of deployments. Uh, And I'm not sure if any other place would have allowed me to give what I needed to give. Um, in the manner in which you know I needed to give it, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very much a developmental point in my life, professional life. Um, during that tour, had two kids, uh, went out to Camp Pendleton. Finally, got my Camp Pendleton orders. 
What? That's like after nine years. Yeah, the Marine Corps thought I was finally older. cool enough to go out to Camp Pendleton. Was a company commander out there. Did a deployment uh, to uh, Japan on a, on a mule. And then uh, became an operations officer of a battalion um, and went out to Australia for six months and then got selected for recruiting duty. And that's what I did prior to this and spent three years recruiting in Orange County, California. How was that? Yeah. Uh, Recruiting duty for sure in CONUS, like in CONUS, is the hardest duty (laughs) that the Marine Corps has to offer. I will debate any Marine with regards to, you know, that statement, but it's hard. And, you know, when I think about it, combat is on and off, you know, 30 seconds off, one day off, or 30 seconds on, one day off, or maybe three hours on, four days off in many ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. the intensity Mm -hmm. of it. And by no means, recruiting is never that intense, but it's three years on and it's 36 months, you know? So it's kind of like, it's like 36 patrols that you will see contact. You don't know when, you know, and every single month, uh, you are, you are kicking and scratching to bring in your, your certain number into the Marine Corps. Um, And I have so much respect for the Marines out on recruiting duty because in many ways I've come to realize uh, two places in the Marine Corps where Marines actually have to prove themselves every single day, like actually prove something objective. Mm -hmm. And that's on recruiting duty and in combat, you know, and in a lot of the places you show up, if you show up in the right uniform, (laughs) if you're a good person. If you're not disrespectful, if you're within height and weight standards, you know, and if you do generally, you know, the right thing, you'll you'll be a B plus Marine, you know, and you can continue to kind of, you know, make it. And it's not a knock, right? No, no, no. Uh, it just is what it is. I'm not saying you're going to be Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, but you're going to get by for a while. But in combat, you could be the battalion high rifle shooter. You could be a 300 PF tier, 300 CF tier. You could be a Micmac ninja to the 12th degree. And somebody with some dusty sandals will shoot you in the face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And nobody will care. Mm-hmm. The same thing on recruiting duty. You could be the honor graduate at recruiting school. You could be the most charismatic person in the world. You can know everything about Marine Corps history. You could look great in uniform. But a 17-year-old can still tell you to go screw yourself. Mm-hmm. And or that 18-year-old's mother can tell you to go screw yourself. <laughs> you know, and Marines <clears throat> on recruiting duty have to deal with that day after day after day after day. Uh, so, yeah, a lot Does of respect. work on your spirits? Like, because clearly you're... you're um you're taking like little micro failures way more than you're getting little successes. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so is that like... Is that why it's so grueling? Yeah, it, that is why it's so grueling because a lot of times, you know, a lot of Marines will check in to recruiting duty never having failed up until that point. Mm-hmm. Ever. A, a lot of the Marines chosen for recruiting duty are some of the best Marines we have, you know? 
Uh, but recruiting duty and combat are competitive environments. Like other people are trying to stop you from doing what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So if you're a helicopter mechanic, them helicopter's not trying to stop you from fixing it. You know, that helicopter broke. There's a manual and a mass sergeant that's going to help you fix it. The helicopter's not going to run away from you. Mm-hmm. It's not going to, like, not pick up your phone call, and it's also not going to try to shoot you in the face. <laughs> you know, as long as you follow the manual and ask the staff sergeant or the master sergeant and or follow the TM, like, you'll be able to fix it. I don't care if you read every sales book in the world, you still might not be able to close on that 17-year-old. And that that is just something not everybody is built for, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but for those that make it out of recruiting duty, like you start realizing, you know, failure is just one step towards success. Mm-hmm. Um, the best Marines out there and most of them get here. These Marines will start understanding that rejection is just a part of the process, you know, and then they'll easily start finding two, three, four people to join the Marine Corps a month, like phenomenal individuals. Mm-hmm. But behind those two, three or four people they find to join that month, you know, it had to be at least 500 rejections that month. And I'm not even like over exaggerating 500 mm-hmm. rejections. Um, and then even those two, three or four people that they found probably told them no for the last six months. You know, so, yeah, those recruiters, they're pretty much on the front lines making sure our Marine Corps stays alive. Now, what happens if a recruiter doesn't make mission? Doesn't make mission? Yeah. They get retrained, get retrained, you know, and get back after it. Not everybody's It's not disciplinary, to... though. Nah, nah. For the most part, like, if it's if it's systemic, like, month after month, you know, going on several months, um, you know, you're going to get some real intensive training to see what the deal is. Uh, but if you if you're if you're doing your best and you're trying to stick around, Marines are going to be able to break through, you know, uh, those tough spots and they'll start finding people. Mm-hmm. Usually. And this only happens a few times, but like it's usually if Marine decides he or she wants to quit on themselves um, because they don't want to be on the duty, you know. Um, but that is few and far between Uh, a lot of the horror stories that you hear are just that kind of like, you know, those horror stories that kind of make it, you'll see a ton of these Marines out here with the recruiting ribbon and they're some of the best Marines out there. And when they look back on it, right, they'll tell you like, yeah, it was some of the, some of the best times and it developed them the most, Mm. you know, just like, you know, your deployments probably, you know, a lot of it you may not want to repeat right then and now, uh, but you wouldn't t- give up that experience for nothing. No, definitely not. And I would say, like, this is a little bit different. This kind of speaks to your less recruiting and more of your time at, like, being an instructor uh, uh, at the TBS and different different schools you were at. Because I left, too, and I went to basically did the enlisted side of that. I went back to SOI to teach yeah. infantry Marines coming in. But, um, but I learned so much more about my job when I taught my job. Oh yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. dove into the pubs first time ever diving into a pub, you know, understanding master lesson files and what the purpose was behind this training and that training and why we teach it this way, vice another way. And then some of it just became like, I didn't want to get sniped. So I didn't, 
and these 18 year old kids are smart mm-hmm. coming in there so it was like you want you have to know more mm-hmm. otherwise you mean in front of 300 marines and get sniped as the instructor and lose all your credibility so there's that piece to it oh yeah but i definitely learned the most when i was teaching it um anyway i meant to say that earlier before we got under recruiting what was the hardest um and let's not say the hardest but is is it always um for recruiting stations does every recruiting station have the same mission or is it like population driven is there different dynamics to how they say how many your station brings in versus somebody else's or is it always the same for every no it's generally it's generally it generally has to do with your population um so there's 48 recruiting stations and you know every single recruiting station has a different uh population within them so Mm -hmm. like orange county california is gonna have a lot more people than say uh a recruiting station in the midwest Mm -hmm. so the recruiting station in the midwest their ao is probably going to be larger uh to where you know people are traveling hours and hours just to get from you know one high school to another Mm -hmm. um, because they have to have more population to try to do their job um but no some stations are required to recruit more not doesn't necessarily make it harder is more tied to what we believe the population is at the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you probably had a bigger mission than most people. Yeah, Orange County has you know a, a larger mission comparatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know I talked to you you know back when you were doing it, and it was a big learning curve for you, right, coming in there. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, recruiting duty was one of the first times. You know, it was the first time where. You know, I'm in charge of something that I know nothing about. Hmm. You know, uh, as a platoon commander, uh, even though I was not that experienced, I knew my infantry. You know, I knew what the pub said, uh, and I knew even more than what the pub said because of the the awesome people that taught us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was pretty confident, you know, uh, even having staff on right, he was teaching me all the time. So I was able to continue building very confident teaching Marines, uh, going to whatever schools I went to, all that was infantry centric, Mm -hmm. teaching at TBS, infantry centric, teaching at IOC, infantry centric, Uh, being a company commander. What's cool about being a company commander, all of those lieutenants that I had, I taught them at IOC, mm. you know, so like I was always like very comfortable uh, going into that next job. And then there's this place in the Marine Corps called recruiting. Uh, you don't wear camis anymore. You put on that uniform that I'd never worn. And your job is to sell uh, and to sell the benefits and the features of the Marine Corps. Uh, so I learned a lot. Um <clears throat> I never had that many senior staff NCOs. I had a sergeant major, master guns, three master sergeants, more gunnies than, you know, you can count, more staff sergeants than you can count. Everybody in the station wears a blood strike. You know, no lance corporals, no nothing. There's mm-hmm. like maybe one corporal, maybe one mm-hmm. out of like 110 Marines. Um, so just leading an older group of Marines, you would think is easier that also comes with it's also different right because uh, they have different needs than 18 year olds do mm-hmm. we actually have to work a lot crazier hours and everybody's married with children 
the mission comes first. Uh, we want Saturday and Sunday off, but if we don't have the mission identified, we might have to work it. So definitely on recruiting duty, you're going to make, you know, some very, very difficult calls mm -hmm. and, you know, have to do things that uh, will challenge your leadership. But for sure, that duty for those three years, I, I grew a ton. Mm -hmm. I grew a ton. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, if you have one piece of advice to anybody that's out recruiting right now, what is it? Um, or, or a couple, if you have some, yeah, you yeah. Know, any advice that you have to make their... Yeah, for everybody on recruiting right now, uh, and for the most important people on recruiting, which are the 8411s, the recruiters out on the streets, your job is to do two things. Uh, number one, your job is to get rejected. All right? And... You know, you're going to want to go to Chipotle and get your lunch. All right. And you're going to be waiting in line and you've been, you know, calling people all day, trying to find people all day. Everybody's been saying no to you. And then you're going to get your bag at Chipotle and you're going to be walking out like he's like, I just want to take 30 minutes to myself, like to myself. And then you're going to see a qualified looking male. <laughs> you're going to see the qualified looking male and. You're going to think of two things, right? Like either to start a conversation or act like you didn't see him so you could sit down and eat. <laughs> um, so your job is to get rejected. You know, we need you to tap that person on the shoulder, you know, to shake that person's hand and, and do what you know that you're capable of doing. Um, because the more rejections you get, the what? The more likely it is you're going to The more yeses you get, period. Mm -hmm. The more rejections you get, the more yeses you get. It's an equation, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes Marines will be like, sir, how many no's do I need to get? <laughs> Another a one. Yes. It's like one more. Another one. One more. One more no. And eventually that yes comes. That mm -hmm. yes comes. What's that like? Like your first one? Oh, man. Like, because I've best. never done it. No, yeah, it's, it's got to be something. Right? Yeah, it's the best feeling ever. You know, it's the best feeling to see Marines, you know, really teach somebody about our Marine Corps. And the way it works is like, you know, you meet somebody on the street and the first thing you really want to do is make sure that they're qualified, screen them out. But you want to get them back into the office. So you're like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow at three o'clock? And then they might say, all right, yes, I'll meet you there. So like, like that's the first yes. <laughs> Most people are like, nah. But like, that's the first yes. Like, oh, all right. Well, guess what? 50% of them are not going to show up the next day, you know? Uh, and then the you few gotta eat that it. do. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's man, another no. That's another, that actually is another no. They yeah. just didn't want to tell you no yesterday. To your face. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, eventually you get somebody that says yes to the appointment. They show up for the appointment. They're fully qualified. And then you give them a two hour brief. And I don't know if you remember the tags, mm -hmm. but you have like a two or three hour conversation with them and you teach them about the Marine Corps, the tangible and intangible benefits and what the Marine Corps can provide for them. And, you know, at the end, you ask them, uh, do you want to be a United States Marine? And, you know, every once in a while you get that. Hell yeah, I do. And that's it. You know, that's <laughs> what it's worth. That's what it's for. You know, mm -hmm. some recruiters get one of those a month. Some recruiters get seven of those a month, um, but every single one of them are special for sure. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. I would imagine that's a cool thing. I think um, it was a different 
It's a different time when you recruited than when I was coming in or when you were coming in. Mm. I think recruiting, making mission might have been a little bit easier there, at least for a little while after 9-11, a couple of years. Um, did you have any of those recruits that just came in and was like, I'm trying to I'm trying to go to war. I want to be infantry. I'm going to make this easy on you. Did you have that ever? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, our nation is filled with just phenomenal oh, yeah. people. You know, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like we were just surrounded by a bunch of people that didn't want to serve. No, like people have other plans and, and other goals, uh, and you, we have to sift through that to find the ones that that want to serve, mm-hmm. or sift through that to educate the ones that didn't know they wanted to serve. <laughs> come to realize, like, oh yeah, I actually do want to. You know? Now, is there like a roster of this is the, or not a roster? But let's say. Earlier, we were talking about very specific. Who is your very specific person, right, that you look for? Is it like an archetype thing where you're looking for the protector archetype? Because some of these kids don't want to just come in, and, and some of them don't know, right? And then, like in our experiences with Marines that come in, a lot of them went to college and found out, hmm, I should have just did this from the beginning. I'm going straight from (laughs) dropping out of college to the recruiting station. That's like always what we hear. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of that first year college student um, interest. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get those. Um, Mm -hmm. But to be clear, not everybody's even qualified to join the Marine Corps. I think that's a big thing that's misunderstood. It's like, yeah, if if college doesn't work out or if, you know, if I can't find a job in a couple of years, I'll just join the Marine Corps. People aren't qualified to join the Marine Corps and being on recruiting duty, it made me realize like in the Marine Corps, we have some exceptional people in it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't realize how exceptional they are because we're in it. You know, I think about like, and everybody's exceptional. Yeah, the New so. York Giants, do they look at each other like we're the best players in the world? No, like there's a worse player on the team that they're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, we need to trade him. That's how we kind of look at ourselves sometimes, right? Like mm-hmm. we're not that good. Sometimes we, we think that. No, we're actually, we are actually that good in mm-hmm. many, many ways. Um, there are a lot of people that said yes to joining the Marine Corps and then we would realize, oh, they aren't qualified because they would go to MEPS and they aren't physically qualified or they would take the ASVAB and they can't pass the ASVAB, you know? Um, so, yeah, there's definitely certain qualifications, you know, easily easy to Google up, um, but not everybody can, can reach that. So that's sure. another thing that the recruiters are, are trying to do, identify specifically those that will pass mm-hmm. not only the ones that are going to say yes but the ones that will pass mm-hmm. now did you put uh, did you put um recruits in that then didn't make it like a, a is that something yeah, that happens yeah, a lot sure. that, that like, happens just didn't make it through boot camp yeah that, that happens a um, couple yeah. of reasons most most of the reason why that happens they get hurt mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like they, they they'll get some type of an injury uh that they can never get healed from mm-hmm. um every once in a while somebody just decides to like quit um but you would expect that in marine boot camp you know mm-hmm. it's yeah not, yeah not no, for, for everybody sure. um for sure yeah check what's after recruiting where i'm at right now uh so currently at the school of advanced warfighting uh like you talked about and it's pretty cool it's definitely a 
a shift from recruiting duty, um, being able to think deliberately about war fighting 24-7, you know, reading a couple hundred pages a day, mm-hmm. uh, analyzing, you know, the history of warfare, synthesizing that. And I'm surrounded by 20 plus peers uh, that have different experiences across the Marine Corps. And all we do is just from different vantage points based off our experience talking about the different battles that have made up the history of warfare, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and the whole point of that is to kind of see how history is going to lead us towards the future and how we, you know, as Marine majors can, you know, become staff officers that can help inform a general's decision-making uh, so that we can win, you know, next year and next decade's battles in uh, campaigns. So it's a pretty cool opportunity. Um, go to class twice a week. Uh, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, um, but, but super excited to kind of dive into my profession the way I'm able to right now. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And in in this, you guys get to travel to a lot of the battle sites at some point, right? Is that towards the end? Is that like the back half of the class? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll go to many of the European World War II sites and World War One sites. Uh, we'll go to the Pacific. Uh, we'll go to Israel. It's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely a plug for the School of Advanced Warfighting. Um, apply, you know, because uh, it's a once in a lifetime experience on a personal and professional front. So yeah, big things, big things. Um, future, what's the future look like? Let's we'll start wrapping this thing up. Future, um, continuing to give, you know, Marines everything I've got while I get to wear the uniform, you know, it's a privilege to wear a uniform and mm. every single day that you get to put it on, uh, is one day closer to when you need to take it off, mm. you know? And once you take it off, very rare exception like you're not going to put that bad boy back on yeah in fact um so for all the gripes and complaints we may have about the service every once in a while everybody's going to be in their rocking chair at one point wishing they could kind of be in a part of a rifle squad again mm-hmm. or or a platoon again or whatever again or a recruiting station again um because you know that that pressure that stress that builds companionship, you know, and that builds camaraderie. And that's mm-hmm. the same reason why after over a decade, we're here today, mm-hmm. you know, and we have, you know, Marines sitting over on the couch. He's been watching us for like three hours. Why? <laughs> because that's just how we are and why we can call up countless numbers of Marines tonight and they're going to answer, you know, and why you can have a reunion uh, during a decade anniversary and they're going to answer. Mm-hmm. Um so that's what I would leave people with. Enjoy what you have. Um, the grass isn't always greener. Uh, and if the grass isn't green where you're sitting, then water it. Mm. Then water it, you know. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I'd probably leave y'all with. Matt? Thanks for coming on, sir. I'm sure we're going to have you back on. Um, and it was an honor to serve with you. Yeah, you too, brother. Man, I can't thank uh can't thank you enough I'm trying to set it up for a while now you somebody that's helped me work through this uh you know into my career you helped me work through that you've helped me work through school you've helped me work through personal problems i'm forever uh at your service and indebted 
for what you've given me, you know, as a person. So appreciate you coming on, appreciate the knowledge. And I hope that, uh, hope you guys like what you hear. And, um, like I said, at the beginning, share this out, get this word out there. It's good information. Um, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Louisiana gun shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's money. Yeah. Money.